Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mormon Stories Podcast. I'm your host, John DeLynn, and we are super excited for our next part in our series with LDS Discussions or with Mike from LDS Discussions. Uh, LDS Discussions is this amazing website. You can go to ldsdiscussions.com where my friend Mike has written, I don't know, 50 or 60 essays on the Mormon Church's truth claims, trying really hard to just focus on the facts and the evidence and to discuss, uh, you know, issues or problems with the Mormon Church's truth claims. We have done uh, three episodes so far, so if you are joining us for the first time on this series, we did an episode on, um, on Joseph Smith's treasure digging. That was part one. Then we did uh, the Golden Plates as part two, and then we did the Book of Mormon translation as part three. Today, we are super excited for part four, which is the lost 116 pages uh, to the Book of Mormon. And uh, Mike, it's so great to have you back on Mormon Stories Podcast. How's it going? Ready to do another one? (laughs) People are loving this series. I hope so. I mean, like I said, I hope it, you know, the whole thing is to find it helpful and I think to to do it in a way that is, you know, um, one of the one of the things, and, and I know you've experienced this from people you've talked to, is people when they read, like, say, the CES letter, it feels like you're being ambushed because it's just so much at once. And, and I'm hoping by doing this, doing topic by topic, a little slower, um, we can go over it in a way that if you're a believing member, you might not be comfortable with it, but at least you'll understand, like, it's not just us throwing out anti-Mormon stuff. And I point out a few times already where. You know, I purposely avoid some of the, the stuff that would be considered anti-Mormon because I don't feel it's foundationally sturdy enough. And, and so the whole point is to, to do this in a way that I feel I'm hoping that even if you watch it as a believer, you could say, I don't agree with you, but at least you're not, you know, I don't think you're making things up or intentionally trying to to uh, misrepresent the positions, both of the, the church and the evidence. And, and so I'm hoping this is helpful to people because it, like I said, what was for me, I was asked to do this by a believing member. And, and so the whole time I was doing it in my head, I was thinking, this is how I want to present it to someone who's a believer because I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I also want to make sure that the the evidence is is very sound before I present it to someone. I love it. One last thing we're going to ask for some feedback. Uh, <clears throat> we've been having a few co-hosts each time. We've had Jen on, we've had Gerardo on, we've had Nemo on, and we've gone back and forth. Some of the, you know, at, at times we feel like many of you are just going to want the facts. They're going to want the history um, without any discussion or perspective or much analysis. So kind of a leaner, shorter, abridged version. And then we feel like others of you may really like the more extended versions where we're emotionally reacting, where we're talking about broader issues. We're trying to contextualize this. And we're not sure which to do, whether we should do shorter, really lean and focused versions, longer, more um, expounding versions, or if we should release two versions, a short version and a long version. Um, so please email us or comment on your feedback because we'll do whatever the, the overwhelming majority want. We just don't know. We're, we're, we're torn. We want to keep it fun and interesting, but also we don't want it to be super long and we want to keep it focused. So today, this episode, we're doing a, we're only going to have just me as a co-host to reduce the insight and commentary. And Mike and I are going to try and just stay our, keep our commentary focused on the 116 pages and not zoom out to the broader issues. How's that, Mike? Does that sound all right? Yeah, I mean, I think it like, you know, we, we've we've tried to find that balance because 
the thing is, the, these presentations by themselves are a little dry. And if you read the overview project at LDSdiscussions.com, the pages get a little long. They get a little in the weeds. And so if you're reading them, um, I think the reason these videos might be more helpful than those in a lot of ways is because of the fact that you have other people who can interject their experience and also other people who, when they have questions about what I'm saying, can say, what does this mean? Um, which, which when you're reading it, you can't do that. And so we're trying to find that balance because we want it to be um, worth your listen. We want it to be something that you find valuable, both in terms of the content and also in terms of um, the tone. And that's why we've tried really hard to to keep this as tight as we can to um, not going off about, you know, things that seem like you're being ambushed as a believer. And at the same time, um, we want to make sure that we're also being authentic to what we've learned in, in those experiences as well. So we, we really just want to try to make it really the, the most valuable for people who are going through these questions, because we've all been there ourselves, but it's hard sometimes when we're recording these to know how they're being perceived because we're just kind of going through the slides and, and back and forth, but we want to make sure obviously they're helpful to all of you out there. All right. Well, that, um, that with, with that, let's <laughs> go ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and dig in now. Uh, this, this 116 pages issue, um, you know, you feel is super important and, and Mike, I guess there's going to be a few people who don't even know what we mean when we talk about the 116 yeah. pages. So why don't you give it an intro, just like the 30-second version of what happened, and and talk about why you think this is so important. Well, we have the actually. If we go to the first slide, we can kind of do that because we're gonna we're um, go over why they're important. And, and like I said, I said this, I teased this in the last episode. I feel like this is one of the most important overviews in part because of the window it gives us into Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, but also because of the fact that you're not going to see this as much in some of the more common materials like the CS letter. And I think it's because it is a, it's a tricky one to talk about, but it's so important. And so there are three reasons um, that I think that this is just a really, really impactful topic. And one is we've talked about this in the first few overviews, but Joseph Smith uses treasure digging techniques, both through his treasure digging and through the gold plates and through the translation. And as we've mentioned, every time Joseph Smith loses control of the situation, but he becomes powerless. And so in this case, not only does Joseph Smith lose his power with his peep slash shear stone, but God loses any power to help him in a physical manner. And that's really important to note when you are tracking this um, in a secular viewpoint where you're saying, why is it that God loses his power at the same time as Joseph Smith? And so we'll go through that as we go through the story, but you got to keep that in mind because Again, it's not just Joseph Smith that loses his power. It's God in the revelations who loses control of the situation. And that's a really important thing that you have to acknowledge, even as a believer, with the 116 pages story. Okay. All right. That's and one. That's one so the, um, oh, go back real quick. And then um, the, other, the other two real quick um, from the last slide are um, just kind of, let's see real quick. Can you go back one slide? There we oh, go. Sorry, sorry. No, no, it's fine. And so one of the things when I was like, when I said, when I joined, I did not grow up in the church. And so my understanding of these stories was a lot less because I didn't go through seminary. Um, I joined after high school. So um, the idea of the small plates was just told to me as if it was always in the church's documentation. It was always thought of the whole time. And so it was always told to you like God had planned for this exact event. And he created the idea or created a set of small plates because he knew this was going to happen. And what's amazing is um, we're going to refer to the um, article that will be referenced heavily. 
But there's this article that went through, and you can actually show the small plates are not even thought of until Joseph Smith finishes the Book of Mormon and then has to go back and write the beginning. And that is so important to understand, again, into the window of the process. And then the third one, and this is kind of something we're going to hammer on now that we're going into the Book of Mormon text itself, but Joseph Smith leaves his fingerprints all over the text. And in the replacement text, Joseph Smith has to recreate it in a way because he doesn't know if Lucy Harris has it. And so he has to replace this text in a way that is so vague that if she does have it, she cannot expose him. And we're going to kind of show um, through some of the work that Tanner's did um, where he's doing it and why it is so obvious now that Joseph Smith was trying to effectively cover his tracks in the replacement text. Okay. And you had this as a summary slide, but the reason why I wanted to pull it up front is because it's it helps people know what to pay attention to. So what yep. you're saying is pay attention to what extent God God's power seems to be uh, magically limited by the 116 right. pages fiasco, number one. Joseph's power and God's power. It's like all of a sudden their power disappears. Yeah. Does that remind you of the treasure digging, um, you know, sort of a habit of all of a sudden treasure disappear, they slip away, blah, blah, blah. Does it fit that mold? Number two is, um, does the small plates kind of theory within the Book of Mormon end up seeming like an afterthought once you review it? And then three, do you find Joseph Smith's fingerprints all over the place kind of explaining and trying to explain away this problem that that he's confronted. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, those are the three big themes within this overview. And so most of you, if you're watching or listening, um, have heard this story before, but just as a really quick look at the story, the 116 pages, Joseph Smith is working with Martin Harris. Um, he works with Emma Smith. I believe there might be one or two more people that acted as scribes in that time for very short periods, but it's mostly Martin Harris and Emma Smith. And Martin Harris is told by Joseph Smith through Revelation that he needs to finance the Book of Mormon. Um, and that is one of those things that we'll get into a little more later. But because he's being told he needs to help fund the Book of Mormon, his wife Lucy is very suspicious of Joseph and she wants to see proof. Martin wants to show the proof to her. And um, we won't show the South Park clip on this, but you know, this is the whole thing where with Lucy Smith, they say smart, smart, smart. And it's because she wants proof, whereas Martin Harris is, you know, seemingly only looking for proof to help. Um, appease Lucy. And so um, according to Lucy Harris, and again, this is from her, which people would argue she's coming from an antagonistic source, but they say that she even offers to help fund the Book of Mormon herself, but she wants to see the plates before she does it. And then she says that when Joseph refuses to show um, Lucy the gold plates, he actually tells her, and, to, and as to assistance, I always prefer dealing with men rather than their wives. And again, that quote is from Levina Fielding Anderson's book, um, it's from, uh, you know, an account from Lucy Harris, but this is a way where we're seeing, kind of seeing that Lucy Harris is trying, um, I think to interject herself into this, um, story of, of Martin and Joseph. And I think in a lot of ways, again, kind of like we saw in the last episode, when we talk about the spectacles and you've got Joseph Smith kind of stuck with the spectacles because he's being put into a corner. And I think here, Lucy Harris is putting Joseph in a corner. I think Joseph is trying to basically say, I don't want any part of you. Um, because he knows that she is not someone who is of the mindset to just go through the motions with them. And in that quote, I think, again, I know apologetically, you'd probably say she's coming from an antagonistic standpoint. Um, but there at least is that indication that Lucy was even offering, I'll even help you fund it, but you got to show me something and, and Joseph won't do it. Yeah. And yeah. So Martin is, Martin is neglecting his duties as a farmer he is investing all this money in Joseph Smith. 
Uh, it's a fantastic claim to begin with. And I think Martin really, I think the Martin Lucy dichotomy really represents well the magical worldview, yep. which is Martin Harris and the Joseph, Joseph Smith's family, and kind of the skeptical worldview, which which is Lucy Harris saying, hey, if this is all true, I'm all in. But if it's if it's a charlatan, I I, I want some evidence. Yeah, you know, and so it's it's a really great it's a really great story. All right. Yeah, and so this leads to the the, the version of the story we all kind of know, which is basically Martin continues to ask Joseph um, for some way to prove to Lucy that the plates are correct, and Joseph Smith rejects Martin twice, and um, Martin Harris continues, and on the third request, um, God through Joseph in Revelation, agrees to let Martin take the pages. And I just note again, we mentioned this in, in previous episodes, that there's this, I don't know if it's entirely magical, but there's this thing about the power of three where a lot of times you'll see it's always on the third try that um, something is allowed. So, you know, with um, the gold plates, you know, the first couple tries he did and then on the third try, which I know Joseph says more, but, you know, you have these, these power of three. It's not a huge deal, but just to note it. And so Lucy locks the manuscript and Martin reportedly shows it to anyone who comes across. And this is something that what do you mean going... locks? What do you mean locks the manuscript? So according to, to the the story, Lucy gets the manuscript, Martin brings it home, and Lucy locks it into, I think it's a drawer or um some sort of chest. And Martin wants to show it to everybody that comes by the house. And so as the story goes, and again, there are there are some differing stories here, but Martin would actually pick the lock so he could get the manuscript out to show somebody and Lucy was upset that he would pick the lock and not have her do it. And so then according to the story, that's when she moves it again and the manuscripts never seen again. So again, we don't know um, if she burned it, if she tore it up, if she was holding on to it, if she was buried it somewhere, we just, we don't know. And I know there's, there's a lot of theories about that. And a lot of people think she destroyed it. Some people think she was holding it. We just don't know. But, but at that point in the story, once he picked the lock and she takes it away, it's never seen again. And that must have been devastating to Joseph Smith. I mean, yeah. He's 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 not really working a lot. He's not making a lot of money. He's living with Emma's dad, right? Isaac Hale. Yep. And and Isaac's already not super happy with Joseph. Thinks he's a charlatan to begin with. He you know, he absconds with his daughter and so forth. Now he's been working on this manuscript and then all of a sudden they're 116 pages in, which is a big deal. That's yeah. that's sort of Nephi, the equivalent to Nephi all the way through to what? Well, it goes, well, it picks up Mosiah. So you got like first Nephi, second Nephi, you got Jacob. Um, Several books in. Yeah, right? say like five books, I think. So it's like five books in and then yeah. all of a sudden their work is, is gone. I yep. mean, plus, yeah, and then plus there's the issue of, and we're going to get into this. It's like, well, Joseph, if you're really translating from gold plates, you should just be able to reproduce it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's just the it. rub. That's the rub, right? That's just it. And so, yeah. um, so the manuscript's never seen again. And then of course, Martin has to go home and, uh, or go back to Joseph Smith. So, and Joseph's going to be super pissed, but he can't be too pissed because Martin's freaking funding the whole deal. Right. Well, he's funding it. And again, that's the whole thing. When you have control, it's a lot easier to be you know, calm and collected. And when you lose control, then all of a sudden you're scrambling, but you can't let people see you're scrambling. And that really is the whole thing when you're doing something. And again, you're saying it's a con, I know is kind of a pejorative term, but in treasure digging, we know he wasn't seeing anything. We know he used a deception with the feather story um, that we know came from Josiah Stoll, who was a believer. So when he's in control, he can do things like put a feather in there and make you believe that the treasure slipped, but the feather stayed at the same time. With the manuscript, you know, this is, you know, one of those things where he loses control and all of a sudden in his head, it's like, what do I do 
to recreate this. And that goes back and we'll, we'll get to it more, but later, but it really goes back into the translation methods as well. It blows up those whole accounts um, at the same time, which is another problem that we'll have going forward as we look at these topics. Yeah. Yeah. There's always this idea with, with things like the, the, the witnesses seeing the plates, there's always this idea that, that isn't explicit within Mormonism of like your, your spiritual eyes, seeing things right. with your spiritual eyes. But when you've got a hard manuscript with words, you know, it's a lot different than like seeing a vision in the ground of yep. a spirit guarding an alleged treasure. Yeah. As soon as you've got something physical and tangible, then it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult to fool people. So and that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, kind of, we talk about with the gold plates too. Yeah. Um, all right. So if you go to the next slide and this just, we, again, this is very, very well known to any members of the church, but Martin goes back, tells Joseph they lost the pages, and Joseph exclaims, oh my God, all is lost, all is lost, what shall I do? I have sinned. And basically at this point, the production of the Book of Mormon just completely stops. And Joseph Smith attributes this to God physically taking the plates away from him and and, and the spectacles, you know, it would be the Urim and Thummim. And this is really important because again, we have an issue here where we're going to look and see that God has the ability to take away physical objects from Joseph Smith, which would be the plates and the spe and the Urim and Thummim, which at the time was just known as the interpreters or the spectacles. Like, like, are you saying that there's there's a suggestion that they just disappear? Yes, and so that's and the whole point is that Joseph basically says they're gone. They were taken and away by the angel. Goes to the stump where, uh, yeah, wherever they would be, and they're just gone. Yeah, and they're just gone. And so, to me, that's important because one. It, you know, to what we were just saying, if you don't have a physical, tangible plate that you have on the table, it's really easy to say they're gone. And in this case, if you bury them out in the woods or whatever, the, whatever Joseph was doing, I know there were, there were stories that he had them in a box of beans and all that stuff, but whatever, wherever they were, it's easy for him to say they're gone because he's in control of that, that he's in control of because they're not physical. They're not around other people. And again, it shows right here that God has the ability to physically move. So in the gold plates, we have Joseph Smith needing to dig them up and we don't have necessarily God pulling them out of the hill. In this case, we have God being able to do physical work on earth to remove the plates and the spectacles. And I, I just, I'm kind of hammering on that because that's going to be important as we get going in the story, because it really shows again, the difference between when Joseph is in control of elements of a story and when he's not and what the limitations become, not just on Joseph, but on God as well. I mean, if I'm Lucy or, or just the skeptical thinker, I'm thinking immediately to myself, yep. wait a minute, if God can just make the plates and the spectacles appear and disappear, why did he ever need an angel yeah. to make, make Joseph wait four years or however many years? And why didn't he just make them appear to Joseph Smith, visit Joseph himself and just say, hey, here are the plates. Why this whole... And why was Joseph running to protect the plates, yep. beating off people? If God could have just zoomed them away as soon as they were threatened, well, yeah. And that's, why? Why was there any of these shenanigans with Joseph in the plates? Yeah, and, and then, like I said, that's just the whole thing. Like, and it's it's the inconsistency in the story, and the inconsistencies always tend to line up with again where Joseph's in control and where he's not. And so in this case, he's not. He is in control. He's in control right now of the story of the plates, even though he lost the pages. So it's easy for him to tell Martin, I can't continue translating. I need to take a break because God has told me, you know, I've sinned. And because of that, he's taken away my abilities at the same time, you know, with the pages, well, we'll get into it, but yeah, at the same time, the limitation um, comes when we have to then explore the part that of the story 
that he that you know God or Joseph should be able to help. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go ahead and finish the slide. And then I want to make a couple more observations. Yeah. And so the last part is, and this is kind of like a branching off of our last episode on the translation, but Joseph Smith saying all is lost to me is an indication that this was never a translation, but an oral dictation. Because if Joseph Smith was truly translating as all of the witness accounts tell us, which is to say he's reading word for word off of the rock. And if he doesn't write it down correctly, it will not move on to the next, which tells you he can't possibly translate it wrong. Because the rock itself is an active participant in changing the words um, every time they're written down. And so Joseph Smith, you would think if he had lost the manuscript, would be obviously super upset. But he wouldn't say all is lost because you would just have to redo it. It would be like if I was working on a project at home and all of a sudden I, you know, you're, you're assembling an Ikea furniture. And all of a sudden you get three quarters of the way in and you realize you put one of the panels inside out. And you're not going to go, all is lost, I lost the Ikea thing. You're going to go, oh, crap, I got to take this apart and put it back together. And in this case, Joseph Smith is indicating the entire project is blown up. And that would only occur if he knows he can't replace it. And that tells you he was not translating as the witnesses tell us, but was orally dictating. Because if it was a translation, he'd be able to redo it. So, again, he might be mad, but he wouldn't say all is lost. He'd just say, oh, crap, Martin, I got to do this all over again. Yeah, so there's three things. There's... You know, there's why didn't God just make them appear and disappear whenever right. they needed to? Then there's why did they have to stop? Because if he's just like that seems too convenient to say God's punishing him by making right. him late for a season. And then why isn't this just an, an opportunity for God to show something miraculous? Right. Because it, he could have just, number one, replicated the exact text like before and immediately continued. But the yeah. fact that He's worried that he can't replicate the text and the fact that he has to wait for a long time. That's just super sus. I mean, it's, the whole thing is ridiculous, but this is like this, this right here should be enough. And for Lucy, it was right. Yeah. And that's just it. I mean, and, and the thing is we're looking at this um, and, and I done a, when I first started LDSdiscussions.com, and I was more in my, you know, to be fair, I was more in that angry stage where I was just really upset of all the things I was learning. I had put a, a, a summary page in there, I think. And one of the topic, one of the small parts of that summary was to say that all of the revelations that Joseph Smith gets benefit Joseph Smith. They always get him out of a jam. And so, you know, it's one of those things where when you look at these stories, it's like, why do the revelations seem to always get Joseph out of a jam instead of actually just addressing the problem, which we're going to see obviously with this story, but instead of just fixing it, which God should be able to do if he could take the plates away, he goes through all these hoops of telling Joseph, no, you got to stop. And I think that's a pretty good indication that, you know, God's power is limited to Joseph because Joseph is not being honest about where the power comes from. Yeah. And and I guess there's the, there's the, the obvious question of like, why didn't God just say, Hey, Joseph, yep. bring, bring Martin on. He's going to help you. But at some point he's going to want the plates or he's going to yep. want the manuscript and either tell him no, even after three times, keep telling him no. Or if he takes it, make sure he manages in a way because otherwise Lucy's going to lose it or steal it or destroy it. Like, yeah. why? this is why we have prophets, to see things ahead of time. But then the church will fall back in, and we'll get to this, the church will fall back into, well, God lets humans make mistakes. Yeah. And, and, and why that's... we need prophets at all if God just lets humans make mistakes, right? Well, and, and that's the whole thing, right? So we're going to have, you know, in this particular um, story, we're going to have prophets, we're going to have the, the church telling us that all of this was foreseen, 
Yet at the same time, you can tell when you actually dissect the story that it, it wasn't. And, and, and that is why, in my opinion, this is such an important topic because when you read it, it, it really does seem not that it's a throwaway story. Cause if you're, if you're from a critical perspective, you're going to say this shows Joseph couldn't re- replace the text, which shows he was making it up. And I agree with that, but it shows you so much of a window of how Joseph Smith is creating the book of Mormon. And when he does it, you could see how careful he is. And he leaves these fingerprints all over the scene of the crime. And I'm not calling it a crime, but just for the, you know, just for the analogy. And when you start seeing all the fingerprints all over everything, and they're all Joseph's fingerprints, then you really have problems if you want to claim this is a translation by the method that the, the witnesses said, or more importantly, if you want to claim this as an ancient record, because we can see the way that it's being re- reproduced in those pages, it absolutely is being done in a way that is trying to basically, it's almost like, and we'll get to it later, but there are, are parts of that almost are telling you that it, it it's so aware of the fact that it's that it's having to be vague, that it's telling the reader like, wink wink this is why it's vague and it, it's almost it's almost like the phrase like he doth protest too much basically okay so we'll get into that yeah so we'll get into that and then um you know again we've, we've talked about this multiple times but joseph smith's power only works when he's in control and that is such a big part of treasure digging and, um, and magic you know magicians yeah, and magician about, absolutely yeah. and, and, and it's the same it's the reason why magic shows only work if you don't know the joke or the trick. If you know the trick, magic shows are pretty boring because you're like, oh, I know what he's doing. But also a, a magician's environment. People are in front of you. You know, you you, you control the environment to make yep. the trick work. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and so that that's why, to me, it's so important because all of a sudden, when he loses control of this situation, and this is one of those ones where you can absolutely say he's losing control, everything that he, all of these supernatural powers just disappear they just completely disintegrate instantly and um the best way to do this the, like and, and again we talked about this in the gold plates episode emma smith rides a horse to joseph and says joseph there are treasure diggers that are going to the hill Camora to find the plates that you left there joseph smith pulls out the rock tosses it in his hat and says basically oh i knew emma that you were coming and i've actually i can look at the plates right now they're all safe all is well there's nothing to worry about so when Joseph Smith is in control of the of the, the situation, he can tell Emma, oh, I see the plates. They're fine. Even though there's a band of people that are going to look for him and I left him in a hollow log, nothing to worry about, which is so suspect alone. But he loses the manuscript, which we know is a real object. Like you said earlier, it's, that's a real tangible object. Mm. And all of a sudden that seer stone can't locate anything. And so. Yeah. The, so so let me just let you drive that point home. Yeah. Think about that for a second. So number one, why couldn't Joseph have just used the stone with Lucy Harris knew that they were in trouble and predicted yep. this ahead of time yep. because if, if you're a skeptic and you don't believe there were plates because the plates weren't anywhere, of course, Joseph can tell Emma the plates are fine yep. because they don't exist. Exactly. Whereas the manuscript exists and all of a sudden Joseph can't use the seer stone to tell Emma or to, to protect the manuscript at all. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the thing is, you know, you can make the argument of like, well, why didn't God warn Joseph in the revelation? Like if you let Martin take him, you're going to lose him. That would be one thing that would show Joseph was a prophet, except it wouldn't. Cause then in theory, he wouldn't bring him. But to your point, even after Lucy has them, the seer stone should be able to tell him if Lucy still has them or if she destroyed them, if she still has them where they are. And then he could just go get them. He could send Martin and say, Martin, she put them uh, in a little <laughs> under a bench outside of, a, a, you know, outside of the house 
you know, a mile all away. Other, all these other bad guys got them. And yeah, yeah. It's in 401 Downing Street. You Whatever, know. Yeah. I mean, and again, <laughs> it sounds facetious, but that's the thing. This is Joseph Smith's claim powers that he can pull. And we, we covered that in our last few videos. We showed videos from the church where they declared without any hesitation, Joseph Smith could find lost objects with his peep slash seer stone. He's a seer. He's a seer. seer. And so he all of a sudden, sees, right? yep. And so all of a sudden he loses something that is so important to, I mean, again, going through the church's narrative, this is literally the most important thing that happens since the Bible. And all of a sudden that stone can't do anything. Can't so, tell them where they are or what yeah. happened to them. So a skeptic would say he can only see things that don't exist. When yeah. it's actually something that exists that's somewhere out there yep. and he doesn't know, all of a sudden his his seer powers disappear. Yeah, I mean, or he can see what he has control over. So like, you know, there, there's a story where like someone loses a cow and Joseph is able to find it. And then the quote is something like, oh, Joseph Smith's able to locate things a little too easily. So he's not really seeing it because of course he he moved it. But yeah, to your point, if you can't see physical objects that are around you that are that important, then how in the world are we supposed to believe any of the rest of the story? And that's why these overview projects are laid out in a way to build on each other because we've already covered that the seer stone doesn't work. But now we're showing why even if you want to use the church's apologetic to say, like Richard Bushman said, this was a pre preparation. So the seer stone prepared Joseph Smith to be able to do this work. It didn't because... The yeah. magic didn't work then, and it doesn't work now with the yeah. 116 pages. It just it doesn't work in any at any point. He only sees the undisprovable. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's just it. So it's like now, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, he loses what again is if you want to go with the church's narrative, one of the most important things to come through the earth, yeah. and nothing. He can't even tell if they're if they're still there, and yeah. that's that's a big red flag. I just I don't know what more to say. That alone tells you what you need to know about Joseph Smith's ability as a seer. Yeah, this should be, I mean, okay, I'll, 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 I'll reserve my commentary. Okay, next slide. <laughs> um, and so the next slide um, is just, you know, again, we kind of, you know, talked about this just now. So we really don't need to go over too much more. But this shows that as soon as Joseph Smith loses control, he loses all of his power. It also shows that if you believe God is channeling through the seer stone, which is what is taught, that God loses the power to show Joseph Smith. Now, the apologetic is that God takes away the power. And so God's punishing Joseph. But that, again, has a lot of implications we'll get into as we go through it. And then the last one is just to say, this is the perfect opportunity for Joseph Smith to prove himself a prophet. And there's yeah. no record of Joseph Smith even claiming to say he could see him or trying to locate him, which shows me that Joseph Smith is well aware of the fact that he, that he has no control and therefore no ability to do it. Because he's not even, there's no account that I've seen that indicates that Joseph Smith is telling those around him, I can see him and she's trying to expose me or I can see him and she's altering him. This I mean, it's just... kind of weird that Emma's like, Joseph, just look at your stone. Yeah. Go find him. I mean, she probably did, but he probably didn't tell anybody or write that down, right? That's just it. I mean, and so, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like all of the signs are here where if you told a believing member of the church this story and you said it was Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, David Koresh, Warren Jeffs, and they obviously, they're probably going to be aware Delin. of John Delin. Yeah, or John Delin or, or yeah. me. Like I came and I said, I found this ancient record. Uh, Every you'd person is going to go, you're making it up. You'd laugh yeah. us out of the room. They would. And they'd be right to do so because if you're going to claim powers and every time you have the opportunity to prove yourself, you fail, claiming that the reason they fail is because God wants you to have faith, it really becomes indistinguishable from outright fraud because you can make that claim. Again, we've, we've talked about that in previous episodes as well. You can make that claim for anything. And so it just, the, going by the, the evidence at face value, it, it doesn't work. And um, 
That's important. And so I, I kind of referenced this a little bit ago, but one of the themes you'll see revelations in the church is that God is always helping Joseph out of a jam. And so this is going to be from Doctrine and Covenants 10, which is going to be written long after the event happens. So again, just like we talked about with the Book of Mormon translation, the gold plates, these accounts are being written months later. So they're being written with Joseph Smith kind of having a different perspective. But the part I want to read just says, Now behold, I say unto you that because you delivered up those writings into the hands of a wicked man, you have lost them. You also lost your gift at the same time, and your mind became darkened. And behold, Satan hath put into their hearts to alter the words which you have caused to be written or which you have translated. Behold, I say unto you that you shall not translate again those words which have gone forth out of your hands. For behold, they shall not accomplish their evil designs in lying against those words. For behold, if you should bring forth the same words, they will say that you have lied and that you have pretended to translate, but that you have contradicted yourself. And behold, they will publish this and Satan will harden the hearts of the people to stir them up to anger against you that they will not believe my words. And, you know, it's one of those things where we, um, I, why don't we just go to the next slide actually, because we can go through some of the issues with, with this one. Um, first of all, this revelation was not recorded till at least April. Um, the Joseph Smith papers project actually says it was likely May just because of the different ways the phrase is being used and, and all of that. They think it was May, which would be basically when Joseph Smith has already been working with Oliver and he's probably getting to the point where he needs to know what to do with the uh, replacement text. And so this revelation is being written as a way to give Joseph a springboard to set up how he's going to replace the text. And that happens later. And we'll get to that later as well. Um, to note again, that the current doctrine and covenants 10 that you'll find in your scriptures is going to be different. Um, they add a lot of stuff and they add the term Urim and Thummim, which is not in the original. We've mentioned that repeatedly. And I just want to keep pointing that out because that is a retrofitted term that has nothing to do with the original translation because the Urim and Thummim is an incorrect, uh, use of a translating tool anyways. Um, and it just shows how the church is willing to, um, uh, I guess, rename or rebrand biblical terms to take away the folk magic um, because they don't want to say they're trying uh, to hide the peep stone they're yeah they don't to... want to say peep or you know they'll say seer stone but you know i always say peep slash seer stone because i know peep stone it's is, derogatory, it's derogatory yeah. but that's how it was referred to at the time by everyone who wasn't in the church but seer stone i believe is also misleading because he never saw anything so for me <laughs> so for for anyone listening if you're like why do you keep saying peep slash seer stone it's because i'm trying to be respectful to believing members but also trying to mention the fact that that is peepstone is how it was referred. Um, so anyways, seerstone's literally anachronistic to call it a seerstone. Yeah, that's just it. You know, and, and to call it, to call it Urim and Thumb is anachronistic. And so this whole, the whole thing is he's using the same treasure digging techniques. Yeah. We've covered that. Um, so DNC 10 is entirely to the benefit of Joseph Smith, because even though God is chastising Joseph in this revelation, he's really chastising Martin. He calls him a wicked man, but then he kind of chastises Joseph for letting the papers go out. But again, remember, Joseph Smith asked God three times and on the third time he was given permission to give him to Martin. So to blame Joseph is kind of silly because God on the third time could have just, you know, and again, I realized from That's the a good standpoint. Point. Why didn't God say no the third time? Yeah, God could have said no the third time and said, no, Lucy Harris is waiting to set a trap, which again. This is too important. This is, way yeah, important. This is too important to take away. Or, you know, if you want to really go this route, you could say, yes, Martin Harris can take the manuscript back, but I need you to make a second copy because we. Uh, I believe Lucy Harris is hard as hardened and she's going to try to expose you, but none of that happens. And so my point is DNC 10 and, and Joseph does this a lot where he'll chastise himself in these revelations while at the same time creating himself an opening when his leadership's being questioned or when some of his prophecies aren't coming to pass. Um, you know, he, it's a really great tool and you'll hear people in the church all the time say, 
Joseph Smith was so humble and God humbled him a lot in these revelations by calling him out, even though he was prophet, God still went after him. It's like, except it was really self-serving, you know, it, it's one of those things that is really an easy thing to do when you're in charge of a church to say, God's upset with me because of this, but he's also upset with you. So you got to do your part too. Um, and DNC 10 really accomplishes that because Joseph Smith needs an out to make these replacement texts seem like they're not just being made up because he doesn't know how to do it. And so this is going to give him a roadmap on how to replace it. Can I check in with you on the logic of DNC 10 just really quickly? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So, um, again, it's weird that God's, it, it's weird that this is written, that why this wasn't written when he was working with Martin, but instead this is written way later when he's trying to like wrap, wrap things up and tie things up. I think that's a good point. He's yeah, like realizing, man, this is all problematic. I gotta have some sort of justification. And then all of a sudden yes. revelation comes, but just, I, I want to read this thing again. Behold, I say to you that you shall not translate again those words which have gone forth out of your hands. For behold, they shall not accomplish their evil designs in lying against those words. For behold, if you should bring forth the same words, they will say that you have lied, yep. and you that you have pretended to translate, but that you have contradicted yourself. Now, wait a minute. Why wouldn't they just go, oh my gosh, he really is translating because he was able to reproduce the identical words? Yeah. Can, I just don't want to explain God's logic there. Well, I mean, again, the logic is that God via Joseph Smith um, is very insecure and very unconfident. And, and, and that really is the problem that we're going to have when you go through, through this text, which is to say that why is it that God, who we believe, again, can go and just grab plates out of Joseph's possession and who can strike people dumb when it comes to this, cannot find a way to effectively stop people from lying. And, you know, um, actually God's logic. What's God's logic. I just help me understand God's logic. If Joseph reproduces an identical manuscript, why is, why does God think that that would, that would cause problems? Okay. So let's go to the next slide. But yeah, so the logic is that if, if he recreates it exactly, that, that Lucy Harris is going to forge the original manuscript to say something different and then say, Joseph oh. Smith, change it. Yeah. And so that's the problem. And but so then, but then you could just look at Lucy's handwriting. Oh, forge it. Yep. Hmm. That's the problem. And so all of a sudden, I remember that now. Yep. Interesting. And so now all of a sudden you're in a position where you're looking at, excuse me, but, going, but, then, that, but then those, the forgeries would be like written be really obvious margins with little carrots. Yep. If the ink would look different, yep. the handwriting would look different. Yep. I'm kind of calling God, I'm calling BS on God on that one. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it would the, be pretty obvious if all the differences were like little carrots. Right. In different ink with different handwriting. I'm calling BS. On well, and, and, and the thing is, like, you know, and that's why when I when I did the earlier slides, I kept saying God becomes powerless. And so, again, for our conversation, I don't believe this is God. I believe this is Joseph Smith speaking. I know, I know, and, I know, I know. Yeah, so, yeah, so I'm basically. trying to give God the benefit of the doubt here. No, no, I know. And, and, and again, it shows <laughs> if you want, and if you want to believe, and let's go to the next slide, because I think this is kind of on there. But if you want to believe that God is this power, this all-powerful being, why in the world can he not stop someone as insignificant as Lucy Harris from doing that? And so, um, you know, we kind of covered this. So, um, is it this slide or the next one? 
well, this one, it just says, you know, basically it reveals not the, just the insecurity of, of Joseph's abilities, but of God's, because like to your point, God is basically in this revelation saying, I can't control the situation. So we're just going to completely, we're going to pick up the football and go home and do something different. And, and that's a problem because you're, you, you know, you claim to have this, this perfect translation from the accounts we have from the last episode. We talk about all of the witnesses saying it's perfect off the stone. And then God's basically saying, well, if we do that, they're going to forge it. Except there's no Photoshop back then. In master forgers were, you know, there were, there were, there were forgeries then. But these, this is on full scat paper. It's really long. You know, you, we have samples of Martin Harris's handwriting. You would know. And, and, and it would just be so obvious. And, um, and yeah, that, that's the problem. And so let's go to the next I, slide. I guess I'm just saying, and I'll just summarize this. That I think this is important. So there's, there's two possible problems. One is that problem number one is that is that Joseph's going to be able to create an identical manuscript, which is going to make a whole lot of people impressed. But then Lucy's going to edit a few things, and then God and Joseph can just go, hey, everyone, look, every time there's a change, it's in different handwriting with different ink, and it's in the margins. That's problem one. How many? I'm trying to think, how many problems is that going to pose to the ongoing narrative versus Joseph having to create an entirely different beginning to the Book of Mormon, and then all of the pro, all of the just the fact that he can't reproduce it, yep. and then all of the footprint fingerprint problems that we're going to discuss later. If God's really worried about how this is going to affect people's beliefs, it seems like the path that God chose is way more fraught. Than if he had just went ahead and let Joseph, plus the time that they lost, it just seems like even even if you're giving God and Joseph the benefit of the doubt, it seems like God chose the way more fraught and problematic path for people's ultimate belief. If that's God's logic, he wants the, the highest number of believers as possible and that he doesn't want a narrative that then causes a bunch of doubts, it seems like God still went with the path that generated the most doubts. Am I wrong? No, I mean, and that's the thing. I think we actually, I think in some of the slides, I kind of referenced okay, that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's fine. It's just, it, and that's and that's the thing, because the fact is we're going through this, and it's leading you to that point, because okay. that's where the evidence is going to All lead right. you. Well, we, can, we, can, we can be more brief, but I just, for me, it's helpful to look at this with fresh eyes and yeah, no, that. And that's why it's good because I yeah. think if when we go through this overview, if that's where it leads you, yeah. and 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 I think that's important because you're going there without me even getting to that slide yeah. yet. And so, okay. so when I do that, we could just be briefer on the on the summary slides. Yeah, no, it's fine. And so, yeah, so and, and that's why this is the ultimate win win scenario. This is like the perfect opportunity for Joseph and God through Joseph Smith. If he translates it and it's the same as we told in the last episode, would be the only option given that we are told it's a tight translation. He proves himself a prophet. If he retranslates it and Lucy pr provides like an altered copy, people are going to know because they didn't lack or they didn't have Photoshop and it would be pretty obvious that she changed it. And then that would also prove yeah. that yeah. someone is trying to take down Joseph Smith, which is a win for him. And then the last one is, and, and this is really important. If Lucy Smith was going to produce altered text to embarrass Joseph Smith, she could do it anyways, even if Joseph Smith uh, creates a completely oh, separate thing. Point. So the idea that this somehow stops her from, exposing him makes no sense because she could in theory just recreate another set of manuscripts and say i know we tried to change him with a different story but look you can see all the differences you can see where he made stuff up so it really doesn't fix the problem 
um, because she could do it anyways if that's what she yeah, wanted to do. Right. It doesn't really, point. yeah. I mean, that's it's a great like, point. Yeah, all he's doing is, I mean, all this would be doing is going through all of this extra work to put a speed bump on a on a highway. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not gonna. It's, it would slow her down for a second, and yeah. then she would regroup just as Joseph Smith is. If you really believe this is some sort of like chess game of, of trying to expose him, and so all of this work that we're gonna see with the, the replacement text is being done basically out of his own fear that she's going to expose him when she could do it anyways. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it really is um, showing that Joseph Smith, I think is just so insecure about his abilities more so than anything else. Oh, or that he's just, it's not true what he's claiming. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, and he knows it's not true. And he, and he knows yeah. that he can't reproduce it because of the fact that it's an orally translated book. Again, if it was, uh, truly a tight translation as the just the accounts continue, tell us continue and yeah you just continue. do it over it would you know again it's like you know it's, if you're it would be like if you're um you know your job is to, to to data processing and you're typing up like a um a transcript and you gotta type it into another sheet and then you, all of a sudden the, the file gets deleted on accident you just go okay go back to the first page I'm just gonna retype it out into this this file this is so great. Yeah, I mean, it's just okay. it's so important. But anyways we'll keep going. There, there's one last point I want to make which we all need to watch out for there's this idea that within Mormon Mormon history and Mormon apologetics from the Mormon church's standpoint, the house always wins. Yep. Because on the one hand, why do we even have plates at all? Why do we even why did Joseph even claim to have plates, claim to translate? Why? Why didn't Joseph just produce the Book of Mormon and say yeah. that he had plates in an angel, but no one had to ever see them? Uh, you know, it's because the church, Joseph wanted everyone to think that this was all existing in the material world, that it's an actual history with actual prophets and actual plates, yeah. right? Yeah, um, I mean, that's just it. But then, but then at any point where, like, all of a sudden the story becomes problematic, what does the church, what do apologists always fall back on? Well, we can't have too much evidence or else people wouldn't need faith. And so yeah. you have to sort of recognize that tactic of, of yes, there's evidence, but then when the evidence is problematic, well, we don't want to give too much faith. It's like showing a little bit of leg, but not enough leg. Like at some point, why, you know, it, it, it the house always wins with with the Mormon Church in its history. You can always fall back on an explanation when it doesn't make sense, which is God didn't want to give you too much evidence, yeah. or else you you'd have no reason to have faith. Well, yeah, and it's just again, it's it's we'll get to it as we go, but yeah. the whole point is if. The whole, if the if the purpose of the Book of Mormon is to convert as many people to it as he can, why is God setting up Joseph Smith to look like a false prophet? And it's not just here. We'll get to this later on with the Book of Abraham. Yeah. So again, if you apply the logic of DNC 10, which is that I will not suffer my prophet to to fall, why is God then allowing Joseph Smith to look like a fraud with the Book of Abraham? And I don't want to jump ahead. I'm just saying the yeah. inconsistencies in this story is another area where you can show that yeah. Joseph Smith is is the one that's kind of you know driving driving the car through it and um so anyway so joseph smith is going to resume dictating the book of mormon by continuing with mosiah which is what the the revelation from god tells him to do which is to say start where you left off and then when you get to the end we're going to give you this new set and so okay this, wait did he did he not stop for several months he did he stopped for i want to okay. say uh like well, it was for I think the phrase was a season but i think he stopped for like 9 months or something okay so he's pissed he at stopped martin. for a while he's pissed at martin and all of a sudden, he, quote, loses the plates and loses his ability to translate. Yeah. And this is just for the people that don't know the story. Right. He basically fires Martin as translator, right? And then yeah. as, as scribe. And yep. then all of a sudden, he's going several months. Now, presumably, yeah. 
I think John Hamber talked about this. We probably talked about this. He's probably having to figure out during that time how he's gonna, yeah, how he's gonna do this now. Now that he's lost the first 116 pages and knows that he has to completely rewrite them. So, what do you yeah. think Joseph's doing during the season? Quote that he's not translating. Yeah, I don't. You know, it's funny. I don't know because it'd be on one hand he might have kind of been one of those things where you just kind of go. I got to do something else for now until I can figure it out. And so maybe he's just going back to, you know, working on the farm or maybe he's depressed. Maybe he's depressed. I mean, that's the thing. Like you're not going to, in a lot of ways, this is a, an, an event that kind of stops you completely dead in your tracks. And I think it forces him to try to find a way to come up with the beginning again or how to navigate. And honestly, I don't even think he does that before Oliver Cowdery come. And I think, you know, Oliver Cowdery comes and they immediately start working very fast together. And it would appear that when Oliver Cowdery comes, maybe the fact that Oliver was such a believer in all of this allowed him to work faster. Um, and then as he gets going, he finds his sea legs, I guess. And all of a sudden he's able to kind of to navigate it. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting one. I, I know um, Don Bradley's written a book about the 116 pages. I haven't read the book. I've listened to some of his interviews. And this overview, overview was written before that. And I think he talks more about the actual event of the 116 pages story in his book. But to me, what's really important is how he replaces it. But yeah, it's it's all speculation because we don't have any real contemporary evidence to say that he was, you know, kind of doing notes or anything. It just sounds like he just kind of sets it down and then picks it back up. Okay. So he fires Martin, goes several months and doesn't do anything, decides to start up again, and he brings Oliver as the new scribe. Yep. Isn't it a smoking gun or isn't it a red flag that he doesn't just start over, but that he starts where he left off? Because it, you would think that if he just had the seer stone and was translating, no matter what he was doing, he would just start again from the beginning. Yeah. But the fact that he starts where he left off sort of suggests to me that there was already a narrative uh, like a script or an outline or a story that he was working from. And he just said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just finish what I was already working on the story that I already had in my head or the outlines that I already had in my notes. I'll just finish it and then go back and figure out what to do at the beginning. Right. Well, I don't think he had a script. And, and, and as we, when we go, go through to the replacement an text, an outline, an outline, maybe, but even then, um, one of the things that, that the replacement text tells us is that the people in the beginning of the book know the ending before the middle does. So while I think he has an idea in his head, how he's going to do it, he's not developed the ending, at least at that point. And so that I think is, is an indication that he is working through the story in his head. And I think that might also be why he works so hard to say that the replacement text is a different focus it's it's a more religious instead of you know more um secular um and then to your other question i think it's a red flag because i think personally okay, so wait you don't think that joseph smith like you know how jk rowling would have had to write out the whole outline yeah you don't think that joseph when he started with martin at the very beginning had in his mind the the basic arc the basic characters the basic plot from start to finish and and i'm not i'm not trying to load the mm -hmm. question no, I mean, it's 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 tough because, okay, so I'll give you two things. One is I think sometimes you have an outline in your head and then as you start doing it, you you change it. And so for me, um, I work, I, I've mentioned before, I run a small business and um, before my kid was born, I would be, 
I, I worked a lot of hours because I did all of it myself. And I would sit down on the couch and I was writing a book for fun. Not like one of those, you know, it's not a masterpiece, but it's like, it's a lot. It's actually about the same length as the Book of Mormon. And um, it's one of those ones I want to get back to and edit. But the point is, when I started writing the book, I had the idea in my head what I wanted to do. So every night I would do part of a chapter or a chapter of the case might be. And then all of a sudden I'd get further in and I'd go, you know what? I wanted to do this, but I'm going to change it because it actually, I had thought of this better idea as I was doing this earlier part. And I think with Joseph Smith, because it's an orally dictated text, I think he has the ideas in his head of what he wants to do. But I also think he's got, and we're going to go in, some of the future overviews are going to talk about this, but he's got events that are happening around him that are going to all influence the text of the Book of Mormon. And, and he's also got a milieu around him that's influencing the text. And so I think to your point, he probably has a rough outline in his head of like what the story is. And I think a lot of that's built on like the mound builder myth and all that other thing. But I also think that as he's doing it, because it's orally dictated, he is allowing himself the ability to make changes. And you see that because of the replacement text, the replacement text tells us that Joseph Smith changes at least some of the, the, the events mid to midway to the end of the book. And then when he writes the replacement text, he doesn't really realize that they're kind of late additions in the book. And so when he writes them into the replacement text, all of a sudden as, as a critical reader, you can look and then say, okay, I know that the replacement text was written at the end because it, it knows the ending before before a lot of the people in the book do. Okay, so we'll get it. This is where it kind of gets into the weeds, but it it's does. really, it's it's really important. So, yeah. so viewers and listeners stick with us. This is about to get technical, but it, there's a big payoff. Yeah, um, I think it's important. Okay, all right. So go ahead. And so yeah, we actually we, we just kind of talked about this, so this will be good. So um, he basically Joseph Smith continues with with Mosiah, finishes the Book of Mormon, and then he's going to go back and replace the text at the end. And this is what leads Joseph Smith, who I presume to be the author of the Book of Mormon, to leave fingerprints all over the text and clues that the characters early in the Book of Mormon know the ending before the characters in the middle of the Book of Mormon do, which is an indication that it's being written by somebody as opposed to reading off of plates. Because if it, if these plates are being written, uh, engraved concurrently, they wouldn't know the, the ending of the book. Um, and so this, again, tells you that this is not going to be an ancient record, tightly translated uh, by the power of God, because if so, then God is basically allowing Joseph Smith to bring in, I mean, in a lot of ways, when we talk about anachronisms, it's anachronistic to have some of these things early in the book because they're out of place. Um, and so, you know, that that's a really important um element to keep in mind as we go. And so if we go to the next I'm just going to summarize that because it, it took me a second yeah. to really get that. So what everyone we need to watch for now is so Joseph's going to do Mosiah to, you know, fourth Nephi or whatever. He's going to finish go up the, the book and then he's going to re replace the 116 pages. Yes. If, this is a clear opportunity if we see that the characters in the the replacement text that replaces the 116 pages, if they magically know everything that comes after them, yes, you could always write that off as them just being prophets, seers, and revelators and knowing the yes. future. But it's also a red flag if they all of a sudden have magic powers to know the ending. Okay, that makes sense to me. I just wanted to repeat it. All right. And I, and I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but picture you're watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy and you watch uh, Fellowship of the Ring and Fellowship of the Ring is talking about the final battle with Sauron and all of the stuff that happens in that third movie. And they're all aware of everything that's going to happen in that third movie. And then you get to the, the, the two towers, the second movie, and they're constantly like, not sure what's going to happen next. And you'd go, why are they not sure what's going to happen next? But in the previous movie in fellowship of the ring, that first third, they're already <laughs> knowing. And, and that is exactly what's going to, oops, that's, that's, that's what's going to happen here, which is where you're going to have 
the characters in the Book of Mormon making these prophecies that the people in the middle don't know. So then you have to say, well, either they forgot them, which <laughs> makes no sense because they're so important, or it's because uh, we know uh, the dictation uh, order. And that's why it's yeah. so important. And this is um, – so if we go to the next slide, I want to give a, a, a really, really large shout-out to Brent Metcalf. And I've never met him in real life, but he did an episode, a, bun well, a very long episode with you. And it was one of the ones I listened to early on when I was trying to figure this stuff out. And he was the one that did so much work on the process, the order of the dictation. And if you see here, and this is a, a really easy, quick way to look at it. And this is a chart he had done in his, um, in the new approaches to the Book of Mormon book. And if you look which on the is, right. Which is what got him excommunicated, right? Yeah, this is and this is what yeah. got him excommunicated. And so I want you to look at the right. And so yeah, if, if you see excommunicated, it's a sure sign that they're saying something true. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's just and, and and this is work that is it should be harmless if the Book of Mormon is true. And if it's not true, people yeah. deserve to know it. And so yeah. um the the column on the left is going through the books of the Book of Mormon by the order of dictation, which starts with Mosiah, goes to the end, and then starts back with first Nephi. And if you look on the left, it says therefore and wherefore. And what's amazing is you can see that if you look using the linear order of the translation, Joseph Smith switches from using primarily therefore to primarily wherefore around ether. So all of a sudden in ether, it goes way more wherefore. And then in Moroni, it's 38.0. And then first Nephi, 98.13, 138.20. And the point is that we can tell the dictation order and we can tell that Joseph Smith, there's a sole author because of the fact that they're using the same um, instances or the same uh, patterns of wherefore and therefore before the ending of the Book of Mormon. So it, it it's he starts doing that before he finishes. So otherwise you could say, well, this is because they're two sets of plates, except that this starts before Joseph would finish the translation. And then um, to kind of make the point even more clear, if you look at DNC, Brent Metcalf went and did the counts here you see the same pattern in the DNC sections if you go in order. And so what that's telling you is the person who wrote the DNC is the person who wrote the Book of Mormon. And again, if you want to make the case that Joseph is a co-author to the Book of Mormon, which a lot of apologists today are doing, um, you can do that. That opens up a lot of other issues we'll have to get into down the road. Um, but the point is, for the just for the purposes of this chart, um, it's not so much that the wherefore and therefore the words themselves are significant. It's about the fact that we can show that the person who wrote the Book of Mormon changes their writing style before the begin before the ending of the Book of Mormon. And so it carries through the end into the beginning. And if you're reading the Book of Mormon in the order it's published, you wouldn't notice this. But looking at it from a linear, from in the, the order of, of dictation, this is a really big clue to us as to the writing style. Okay. And so just to make sure I understand what you're saying here, you're saying that between Mosiah and the end of the Book of Mormon, Joseph started falling in love with using the word wherefore. Yes. And and that as he increasingly uses the word wherefore, then all of a sudden when he picks back up into first Nephi, he's really using it a lot. And it shows this increasing trend. Is that what you're saying? It is, is not. And again, it's, it's not so much the trend of, of the words, but what it's showing is so Joseph Smith is going to finish, you know, uh, he's going to do the title page. And then, you know, Moroni, and then he's going to, then he's going to kick back to the beginning. Right. And because he already makes this change in ether, he's already changed his writing style in ether. And then he carries that into first Nephi, which tells you that the replacement text is being written by the same person who wrote the book of Mormon and not from some second set of plates that we're going to be told is created. And so it just shows that you have the same author. And because of those 
um, tendencies with where, therefore and wherefore, we can show that that tendency started before the end of the book and then carries over back into the beginning. Well, and then, okay. And I just saying? want to make sure I understand it because these types yeah. of things get lost. It's very confusing. So I hear you saying two things. Okay. Uh, the fact that the, the, the use of the word wherefore increases shows that, that number one, Joseph is falling more and more in love with using the word wherefore. Yep. Number two, that because the trend increases once he starts over with first Nephi, that um, it shows us the sequence that they're written. Yes. And then the third thing is it shows that the book of Mormon was written by a single author Yes. versus individual authors. Although I guess the apologetic is that because Moroni is abridging this, right. that it's Moroni that's falling in love. You could theorize that it's Moroni that's falling in love with the, <laughs> with the with the reformed egyptian equivalent to the word wherefore but yeah that's, that's kind of silly it well yeah and so no. basically and the, the first point doesn't matter the actual word wherefore and therefore doesn't matter but yeah it's to show that basically we're told these are on two different sets of plates and yet the writing style carries over from the first one directly into the second one which is a problem if you want to believe they're two distinctly different sets of plates and then it also, as Brent Metcalf did such a great job of, it just helps you to establish the order of production, which I think every major, like mainstream Mormon scholar believing in not, you know, believing scholars that work for the church would all agree to the Mosiah priority dictation order now. Yeah, 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 for sure. And then and then someone would look at at the wherefore column with with the final Enos Jeremiah and Words of Mormon and see the dropping off. Yeah. But it's not just because there's shorter chapters. Yeah. I mean, that, I, that's just because you don't have as many times to, to use the word. So I think just, you know, and to be fair, like I know it's six nothing, three nothing. Those are small, small things. It's just showing that he basically, um, you know, at that point, there's just not a lot of words to, to kind of calculate. Or it should from. be technically, it should be kind of wherefores per. Total chapter one. Yeah, if you're going to do that, you'd probably have a better way to look at that's it. But it's just, if you look at the chart, it's pretty, pretty clear. You could see the shift. And, and but so also, he's falling out of love with therefore as well. Yeah. And, and the fact that you could see it, that shift in the DNC as well, I think is important just because, again, it shows the author of the DNC is also yeah. the author. And I know the apologetic would be to say, well, God's channeling the words to him. So that's why they're changing. But then you'd have to say, well, why is God, why is God changing yeah. his, his writing style? Because that, that again opens up a lot of problems. So, and then finally, to your point, you could just say, well, of course, this is where Bushman is has receded to now. It's like, well, Joseph influenced the text. It's right. a, it's it's Joseph's in there. That's why we have inaccuracies yeah. and anachronisms. But then at that point, we've got the tight translation, which you and, and that's the problem. The tight translation, it, and that's just it. So I mean, like, yeah, and that, okay. like Michael Lash has a book that says the same thing, where it's, he's a co-author. But again, if you do that, you have to account for the for the different parts. So, okay, um, if we, thank right. you for letting me talk through this. But no, this is it's, important. It's stuff where my eyes glaze over, yep, and I never really learn it. So if I don't slow down and think it through, and I know there's no, this smart, is smarter people out there that immediately get it. I doubt I'm it. Asking everyone to please forgive us because there's. Some of us are slower thinkers. No, it's and, and when I did the overview, it was the same thing. It's just it's confusing yeah. because there's a lot of there's a lot of things you're going back and forth, back and forth. But once you That's once brilliant. you kind of establish it, it's so good. So anyway, so I'm gonna yeah. um, use a lot of material from Brent Metcalf because it's really important. And so um, he talks about how the early part of the Book of Mormon knows about Jesus before literally anyone else in the world. So Brent Metcalf is gonna say uh, he says in his his uh, writing. Uh, enveloping is particularly evident in discussion of the advent of Jesus. For example, early in the narrative, Nephi relates that Lehi 
an angel and the prophets had all predicted that Jesus would be born 600 years from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. However, subsequent Book of Mormon prophets seem unaware of these extraordinary oracles. At a Nephite revival, King Benjamin comments that the time cometh and is not far distant that the Lord shall come down from heaven and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay. And Brent Metcalf notes that this is surprising because the scriptures that he would possess on these plates already told him that this is not going to occur for another hundred over 120 years away. And so why is King Benjamin saying that the time is soon when he already would have, if, you know, if we believe, you know, that there's a small set of plates, he would already have the prophecy that it's still over 120 years away. It, it, it really makes no sense. So are you saying, and I, I'm sorry, again, I'm just thinking this through. Are you saying that when Joseph started with Mosiah, he's not sure what's going to happen. Right. And, and how he's going to end the book. Yep. And so the prophets like King Benjamin also don't know how he's going to end the book. But yep. then by the time he ends the book, Jesus is coming and, uh, and, yeah. and, and so forth. And then all of a sudden the earliest prophets like Nephi and others, now they know things that Benjamin yep. didn't know. Because now they know. So yeah. So when, with exactly. And that's the thing. So when Joseph's writing the replacement text, he knows the ending. So all of a sudden he can make these prophecies that are like, it's almost like he's writing in a prophecy he knows is going to be fulfilled, which is a really powerful thing in the Book of Mormon. We hear that all the time that prophecies are fulfilled. Well, they're fulfilled because the writer of the Book of Mormon knows what's going to happen again. You know, and I'm trying, you know, again, I want to be as respectful as we can here, but when you are writing a book and you are in control of the text, you can then fulfill your own prophecies. And in this case, Joseph's literally written the end. And so he can be even more specific and give the 600 year date, which is a problem because of the fact that the middle of the book is unaware of that. And and that tells you um, the dictation order. And it also makes you have to then address why is it? Yeah. And, and, and you can make, you know, and we'll get to the apologetics on this, but the argument is basically that the middle prophets had so much material that this just got lost in the shuffle. This is not a small thing. This is one of the biggest, this is the biggest yeah, you know, event. Coming, yeah. yeah. And so you can't just say like, Oh, you know, you know, it's a minor detail. Like, Oh, I forgot to, you know, pick up my kid from an after school thing. It's like, no, no, no. This is like the biggest thing in the whole, in your whole life. So you would not forget that. There's one other red flag that I've repeated a couple of times, but it's just really important. Why, why did, you know, Adam, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Isaiah, all the Old Testament prophets not know when Jesus was coming, yeah. not know Jesus's name, not baptized, not do the gift of the Holy Ghost, not have Protestant sermons. Yep. Why did none of the Old Testament contain any of this, but somehow God was willing to be super specific, not only be super specific about naming Jesus and telling them exactly when he's coming in the Book of Mormon, pre-Jesus prophets, yeah. but also they start baptizing in the name of Jesus and conferring the Holy Ghost and preaching Protestant sermons. Yeah. Like that is a major throbbing sore thumb of an, of a, of a, of a red flag. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's anachronistic yeah. in every way. And it's, again, yeah. it's, it, you know, we'll get into the 19th century stuff down the road and the other overviews, but yeah, I mean, like even going away from the issues that come from the, the translation or the dictation, the, the anachronisms of having a 19th century Christology in a book that's claimed to be, you know, thousands of years old, it, it simply just yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyways, more from from Brent, from the amazing Brent Metcalf. Um, Alma speaks of Jesus's advent in similar uh, similarly general terms. The kingdom of heaven is soon as hand. The time is not far distant, not many days hence, and the day of salvation uh, draweth, draweth nigh. Alma sincerely hopes that it might be in his day. 
His reticence or inability to disclose Jesus's birthday is explicable in his admission, we know not how soon. Thus, Alma, Benjamin, and their audiences did not know what Lehi, Nephi, an angel, anonymous old world prophets, and their sacred literature had known with certainty, that Jesus would be born 600 years after the Lehites departed for the Americas. So again, it's just circling this again to say there are so many examples where the early prophets know these things and then you get to the middle ones and the middle ones are just completely not just confused, but they're, you know, they're contradicting the earlier prophets. And that makes no sense considering that these plates are so important to be engraven and have these records. How could you forget the most important part of the story, which is you're baptizing people in the name of Jesus early, you know, and all of a sudden you don't know when he's coming, even though it's just all of these things tell you that it's being, and this is another reason why I don't think there was a manuscript. Cause if there was a real manuscript, I think you'd have a tighter story where you wouldn't have these many plot holes that are right. um, telling you that, that it's being written by, by someone in the 19th century. And Gerardo's messaging me privately to just drive this point home. And I'm just going to summarize it. Lehi knows the date that Jesus is coming. Yeah. And he says it in the scriptures, presumably yep. he, he engraves it in plates and that subsequent prophets read yep. the prior engravings, yeah. and that's how the Book of Mormon is being written. Yep. So why is it that Lehi knows the date, but then Benjamin and Mosiah and Alma and others are like, I wonder when he's coming. Yeah, I hope he's no coming way. soon. They should know because Lehi had already be, it had already been revealed to Lehi the actual date. Yeah, there's just no way yeah. around it. And again, yeah. I know. Thanks, it's Gerardo. A, yeah, it's a good point. And it's just it's and yeah. and again on the on ldsdiscussions.com on this overview, there's more examples. I'm not going to go through everything just because we'd be here for hours, but I just wanted to give two two slides on that because it's really yeah. important. And so, um, more from from Brent is to say. Um, the enveloping is obvious. Lehi and Nephi explicitly preach the date of Jesus's birth. Benjamin and Alma speak only in generalities. Samuel, like Nephi, is explicit. But when we analyze the passages in the order they were dictated, the enveloping pattern is replaced with a linear pattern. Prophets in the earliest part of the dictation lack specific knowledge of Jesus's birth date. However, with a Samuel date of five years is given. Um, at the expiration of the allotted time, the signs appear as prophesied. In this context, the narrative explains that Father Lehi, Nephi, almost all of our fathers have testified of the coming of Christ and that the year Jesus was born was 600 years from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. Um, Passages such as these pave the way for the next stage of the thematic development. What started as an editorial remark that 600 years had elapsed is transformed into a literal prophecy from the lips of Lehi, uh, Nephi, an angel, and unidentified prophets. These prophecies were not dictated until the 600-year date had had been firmly established in 3 Nephi. And so it's just, again, it's showing that when you look at the order of dictation as it is, starting with Mosiah, everything actually works in a linear way. But So basically, if you read the beginning of the Book of Mormon, you read it at the end, all of this makes sense. But if you read it in the order the Book of Mormon is published, then you see the beginning is written by someone who had already written the end and knows how to effectively backdate the prophecies into the beginning. Did you read the actual quote where Lehi says it's 600 years? It's on the overview, but I don't have it on here, I don't think. Okay, yeah, because that that would really drive the point home to actually read the verse where Lehi yeah. is saying the year. But but we've driven it home. Yeah. Um, I mean it's just maybe Gerardo, if he's listening, he can give us that verse and we can Yeah, if he's listening, you know, send it over, we can we can add it, we can definitely go back to it. Um Okay. And so basically it's just making the point we're making over and over again, which is to say the dictation order is established because of the fact that we can show that if you do it in that order, everything makes sense from a textual standpoint, Yeah. even though that's not the order it was published or claimed to have been written in. 
and this is the whole, this is all historical criticism or biblical criticism. This is the technique that lots of scholars developed to deal with the Bible and the historicity and the accuracy of the, of the Bible long before it was ever applied to the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Jews, Jews were doing this sort of work in the 19th century or earlier. And okay, so so uh, Gerardo is saying it's First Nephi, First nineteen eighteen, and just just because it's fun, uh, and just so that I I just think this really drives it home. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Nephi, definitely worth chapter nineteen, verse eight reads, and this is First Nephi nineteen, and behold, go. he cometh according to the words of the angel in six hundred years from the time my father left Jerusalem. Yep. So there it is. It's actually Nephi saying it, right? But he's basically saying, yeah. he's basically saying that my father, you know, it's 600 years from the date my father left Jerusalem. So that yeah. again, we're beating a dead horse, but I think that's going to just put a stake in the heart, so to speak. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, again, we're just, we're trying to show that this is being written at the end and that you can show it is by the, by the text itself. And so, yeah. you know, I know we are kind of, you know, this is a little bit more in the weeds than some of our first few uh, episodes were, but um, it's this, I think, I honestly think it's one of the most important topics because of the fact that a lot of these things for me certainly went over my head. I never would have caught this on my own because of the fact that when you read these as a believer, you don't think about it. You actually think in a lot of ways, you're like, this bolsters my faith more because they're making these prophecies that get fulfilled at the end because you don't know the beginning was written at the end. And so it, it really does, um, it really does read in a way that is powerful until you realize that the writer of the Book of Mormon was doing it at the end and then able to effectively retrofit and backdate their own prophecies, you know, to make it fit better. Yeah. The problem uh, is it, it leaves the middle hanging out to dry. No, it's it's a it's a smoking gun. It is it, for sure. And so this is another part from Metcalf, which is basically to say that, and we talked about this earlier, that when Joseph Smith's writing the book, um, it appears Jesus's visit is a late addition as well. And so he says, in the early part of Mormon's abridged history, prophecies about the coming of Jesus say nothing about his resurrection advent in the Americas. Benjamin, Abinadi, both Almas, all of whom uh, know minute details of Jesus's life, never mention that a glorified Christ will appear to the Lehites. Not until Alma 1620 is this clearly stated. Many of the people did inquire concerning the place where the Son of God should come, and they were taught that he would appear unto them after his resurrection. The people's uncertainty, which Alma himself shares, implies that nothing had been taught about a promise that Christ would visit America, a promise Nephi earlier described in detail. When, for the first time in Mormon's uh, abridgment, priests teach that the Nephites, to the Nephites that he would appear unto them after his resurrection. Absent any reference to Nephi's prodigious vision, the people did hear with great joy and gladness, seemingly acknowledging the newness of the idea. So not only are we told that the later prophets don't know about this, but all of the people who would have also be, you know, be studying the earlier prophets, none of them knew because the crowd's all excited. No one's like, guys, guys, we already knew this. Why are, why are we all excited? You know, and it just shows that Joseph Smith is, is kind of, you know, evolving the story as he dictates. And then all of a sudden he gets to the beginning and because he knows it, he's just, I mean, it's almost like he's too loose in how he's throwing out the details, being a little too flashy at trying to make the replacement text fit the ending really well but then again as i said it leaves that middle out to dry because if you read that knowing um that the people didn't know jesus was coming that's a huge red flag um that tells you that the book of mormon again is not an ancient record because we've got all of these inconsistencies that are coming from joseph smith having to write the beginning at the end or 
here's a joke, joke alert, or uh, ancient Book of Mormon prophets weren't doing their daily scripture study. Well, yeah, but that's what it would be, right? It would be like if you're in a uh, Sunday and someone points out something from the Book of Mormon and you're like, what are you talking about? And they're like, don't you read your scriptures? It's in there. I mean, that's effectively what we're dealing with here where you're like, either you're not, either your your prophets are not aware and not only not, not only they're not aware, but again, we're told and this kind of goes, you know, again, I keep teasing future overviews, but it kind of goes to revelation in the Mormon church as well. Like the modern Mormon church, because we have all of these prophets who are told one thing and then the next prophet's not told anything. And in the book of Mormon, you would think even if, even if they were unaware of, you know, not reading every single one of the the records, even though this is an insanely important issue that they're constantly getting revelation from God as we're told in the book of Mormon, yet no one's aware of this. And it just shows you again, how, when you are, writing something orally and, and, and to back up one more step when people talk about how joseph smith could not possibly have written the book of mormon because it's so complex these are areas where the the lack of complexity in the book of mormon shows that the person is not right that super educated well thought out person and yeah. i'm not saying joe because i think joseph was brilliant in the sense of being a storyteller and charismatic you know much like you see um you know people who you know have talk shows on tv who are just amazing at, at conversing with people and in telling stories and giving narratives, but it also shows that he, his lack of education hurts him here because he does not tie up the loose ends. He is unaware that when he opens up, when he tries to backdate one prophecy, that all of a sudden another problem opens up on the other end. You know, it does show his limitations as an author as well. Yeah, that's a great point. When when you're when general authorities or visiting seventies or stake presidents or bishops say how to explain how well written the Book of Mormon is. These are a couple really big smoking guns that show that Joseph didn't didn't think it all through or was scrambling. And yeah, I'm, think just gonna, I'm just going to review what you just said for those who just got lost in the words. Not only is the date of Jesus's arrival set at the beginning, but then forgotten by the prophets in the middle. The fact that Jesus is going to come visit the Americas is not known by the prophets in the middle but then somehow it's magically known by the prophets at the beginning. Yeah. And isn't the explanation for that, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, that when Joseph originally was going to write the Book of Mormon, it was going to be less of a theological book. Right, right? yeah. It was going to be more of a of like a fantasy action war novel talking about history, but less about theology and religion. And then Joseph, and so when he's writing the last 116 pages and then the middle section it ha it hasn't evolved in his mind yet into a really full theological treatise but then somewhere between the mid and the end he's like you know what why don't i have jesus actually come to the americas yeah and that's kind of how it evolves i mean again like it's one of those things where it's like i think there are probably like, like i think dan vogel excuse me could speculate better than i could but for me it's like i think it's just there's a lot of time that changes between losing the manuscript, starting back up, and then it's what, like an 85-day process. So you've got like a couple of months where he's dictating, dictating to the closer to the end. He's doing, he's giving revelations, he's getting a following, people are talking about him. All of these things are going to change where he thinks the Book of Mormon might go. So I don't know if he thought at first that it would be something similar to View of the Hebrews, where it would just be trying to explain the mound builder myth. I don't know if it was him uh, from the beginning, if he thought you know, this is going to be 100% like a theological thing because we do have, like Dan Vogel points out that his parents were um, having issues with 
mixed faith marriage, basically. And so his dad was a universalist and a Unitarian. His mom was a Methodist and he was trying to find a way to basically settle the religious arguments. We have all of those things working on. And so I think because of all of those things are all moving at the same time, Joseph's story is trying to adapt to fulfilling all of these needs. It's kind of like when you look at the New Testament, the different gospels are have contradictions and they have differences because they're being written for an audience that has specific needs. And I think the Book of Mormon's needs change through the Book of Mormon process. And we, you know, and we'll go through that in a couple of reviews when we talk about how there are surrounding influences of Joseph Smith's time that directly impact the Book of Mormon that tell us why it's a 19th century text and why nobody else but Joseph could have been the one to write it. Okay. All right. This is good. Let's yep, and continue. So, and now we're going to take a hard turn and go away from the dictation order, but now look at how the small plates themselves are a late addition to the Book of Mormon. And this is something. Okay. Tell, um, tell people what the small plates and the large plates are, because yeah. it's always been that as, as someone who has raised Mormon, who read the Book of Mormon, I don't know, eight or nine times cover to cover. I was always like, why are there brass plates and small plates yeah. and large plates? It's confusing. It just always seemed weird yep. unless you think about it in terms of Joseph Smith losing the 116 pages, writing the rest of it, and then having to figure out yeah. how to explain all those shenanigans, right? Yeah. And so basically when Joseph Smith um, – well, let's just look at this real quick. So. Yeah. Keeping in mind the dictation order that they know the end before the middle, um, and this is because the small plates are carefully tucked into this problem to try to make to try to basically address why there are these discrepancies. And so, from a church narrative, um, it's we have both sets of plates were prepared basically concurrently. And so, um, the Come Follow Me manual actually says um, more than twenty four hundred years in advance, the Lord prepared to compensate for the lost pages of the Book of Mormon by creating this separate sec set of plates. And so. They're basically, and this was a narrative I was taught as a member, you know, as a believing member, still a member, but not a believer. But um, the Book of Mormon dictation itself gives us clues that this, again, is a, a story that is created afterwards to solve a problem that arose earlier. And, and so um, if we go to the next slide, this is going to be a little bit more in the weeds, but this is really important um, because this shows, again, how Joseph Smith is scrambling to backfill the replacement text because, and this is one of the things we, we kind of touched on earlier. I think that one of the reasons that Joseph Smith doesn't touch the replacement text until he's completely done is because I think he's hoping he might get the replacement pages back because if he gets those, the, the original manuscript back, then he doesn't have to replace anything. But if he sets up, if he sets up the replacement text early in the oh. book of Mormon, and then all of a sudden Martin's like, you know what? Me and Lucy have reconciled and she gave me the manuscript. Then all of a sudden yeah. Joseph's double screwed because now he created yeah. a second, you know? And so I think in a lot of ways he, he knew in his head, I have to hold out hope until the last second. I don't get him because if he gets them and he already created the second exit ramp, that's going to look bad. And so, um, I really think that's the reason why he takes wow. so long to get to it. Because he, he has to hope that he's going to get him back. Because, and again, this this goes again to show the lack of power in both the seer stone and God's revelations. Because Joseph Smith does not know if those pages exist still, if they're burned, if they're destroyed. He doesn't know. And so he has to hold out hope that he might get them or, you know, at least wait until the last second before he makes his move. And so. Wow, that's um, great. That's great. Yeah, it's really important. And um, there's a, a site and we link to it on, on, on our overview. It's called uh, Lectures on Doubt. And the, the guy that does it, um, he does some really amazing stuff. And I don't know a lot of people that know to it. So so if you go to LDSDiscussion.com, says overview, and I'll send it to John so you can put in the show notes. It's a really cool write-up, and it's way more in the weeds than this is going to be. 
but it just shows how when you really look at this stuff critically, you can pull a lot of clues that give you that can give you the story that you won't get just kind of reading through the Book of Mormon on its own. All right, let's jump in. So um, this is from um, DNC 10. And again, we, we mentioned this earlier that the Joseph Smith Papers Project believes this was likely written in April. And so I want to read this because it's really important. And it says, and now verily I say unto you that an account of those things that you have written, which have gone out of your hands is engraven upon the plates of Nephi. Yea, and you remember it was said in those writings that a more particular account was given of these things upon the plates of Nephi. And now because the account, which is engraven upon the plates of Nephi is more particular containing the things, which in my wisdom, I would bring to the knowledge of the people in this account. Therefore you shall translate the engravings, which are on the plates of Nephi down even till you come to the reign of King Benjamin, or until you come to that which you have translated, which you have retained. And behold, you shall publish it as the record of Nephi. Behold, they have only got a part or an abridgment of the account of Nephi. Behold, there are many things engraven upon the plates of Nephi, which do throw greater views upon my gospel. Therefore, it is wisdom in me that you should translate the first part of the engravings of Nephi and send forth this work. And so this is kind of confusing. But if you read if you read DNC ten and you look at it for without the pre-determined um, conclusion that there's a small set of plates, God's actually saying the opposite. What He's saying is that, and this is one of those things. If you read the Book of Mormon, you know they kind of they'll keep referencing like there's so many more things to say, but I only have so much room to abridge. Abridge, you know, there's those like throwaways that kind of tell you like this is an abridgment, it's an abridgment, it's not everything. What God is saying here is we're not going to give you a small plate set of plates. We're going to give you the full abridgment to pull from. So. Um, so what he's saying is you're going to translate the engravings, um, on the plates of Nephi, which are like the massive plates down until you get to the King reign of King Benjamin. So God knows where Joseph Smith stops, where the manuscript stops. And then basically he says, once you get there, you're going to stop, which is also to say that this larger set goes well beyond the 116 pages because he has to stop when he gets to the point when it meshes with what he's already translated. And so this text, and again, this is getting confusing, but this is not referencing small plates in any way. It's referencing Joseph Smith using the unabridged, massive, large plates um, to replace the text with. And again, I know it's confusing, and that's why this section does get a little bit more into the weeds. But um, so if you go to the next slide, it kind of addresses this a little bit, but just saying nowhere does the small plates appear, and he's referencing a larger plates to be translated. And this is, you know, again, I, I just mentioned it, but this is God telling Joseph, you were working with an abridgment. We have so many more details for you to work from. So we're going to give you the, the pure source to retranslate the missing pages. And again, it shows that when Joseph Smith goes to start the replacement text, he has not thought of a small plates. His Right now, his two sets of plates are the original plates and the abridgment plates he used for the Book of Mormon. Nothing else. I don't know if you have anything you want to jump in on that before we move on or not, but... Okay, so tell I I I I'm a slow thinker, um, not not the sharpest tool in the shed. So, so so you're saying that at the at the time he reveals DNC ten, Joseph hasn't even thought of the idea of small plates yet, right? And what this what this scripture reveals is that he's still at this point working off one set of plates. Yeah, I mean, so effectively, right? So the 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 plates that are used to translate the Book of Mormon are an abridgment, right? An abridgment by Mormon in Moroni, right? And so what this revelation is saying is not that there was a second set of plates that were created, 
but that there is the plates that were used to create the abridgment. We're going to give you those. So if you have like the Cliff's Notes version of a book, it would be like God saying, instead of reading the first part of the Cliff's Notes, I'm just going to give you the full book and you can read the full book for your for your own. It's not saying I've got another smaller one. It's actually going to a bigger one. Um, and I think in a way that actually makes more sense for the text of the Book of Mormon if you're going to go that route. Because then you're not trying to create this idea that God knew he was going to lose the pages and created a second set of plates that were smaller just to, you know what I mean? Like, Because the church will tell you that basically, as I mentioned, the come following manual, that God knew this was going to happen, even though he didn't tell Joseph it was going to happen. And even though he didn't have this ready right away, you know, again, if God had prepared this long in advance, why do you make Joseph wait nine months to start up again? All of those things are, are red flags. But this is actually, this revelation is not saying what the church would tell you today that it's saying. It never mentions small plates. And in fact, it's telling them to go back to the larger plates, the unabridged plates to, to, to pull the, the replacement material okay. from. Got it. Got yeah. It. It's confusing, but, um, okay. It's really important. And, and, and so, um, if we go, so this is, um, from so this there's article, still, there's basically, there's some point in the story where there's small plates. The idea of a small plates have not, has not yet been generated. I mean, obviously yeah. when Joseph first tells everyone he's got these gold plates, he's not saying there's small plates and big plates and right. plates and a bridge. It's just the plates. Yeah. It's just plates. Then all of a sudden there's this middle point where again, small plates have not, the idea for small plates have not yet really been introduced. Right. And then all of a sudden later, now we get to the point where it gets introduced. Right. Yeah. And so now he's trying, now he's writing the replacement text and he's trying to basically figure out how he's going to address where this replacement text come from. And so this is from the article on lectures on doubt. And it says, so to, okay, so and and sorry, no, go ahead. Just one second. So, so now Joseph is like, okay, I finished. I'm done with Fourth Nephi or whatever. I'm done with Moroni and, you know, Mormon and Moroni. Now I've got to go back and write the 116, replace the 116 pages. Yep. But if it was just one set of plates, I need other plates that I can translate because the original story. Now those original plates are worthless. Because uh, that's what that's what I translated into the 116. So there needs to be additional yeah. plates in the story, or else what am I translating? Yeah, I mean there has to be a separate set of plates because he can't retranslate the same plates because uh, according to the revelation, right, he's going to be exposed by Lucy with altered text. So he has to create a second set of plates. And so what what the in, revelation in the story in the story and again. Before Martin Harris loses the 116 pages, was there ever any suggestion no. that sort of a single timeline had multiple plates for the same timeline? Was that ever suggested well, anywhere prior to Martin losing the plates? So we, we, yeah, there's nothing mentioned prior to Martin that there's a small set of plates. And even in the Book of Mormon, if you go well, Mosiah to the one, end. More than one set of plates for a given timeline, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, there yeah. is... um. We'll get to it at the end. There's 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 a, a part where they say that the prophets basically have like a storehouse of records. And so in that regard, there are extra records in that time that are all on metal plates and highly anachronistic. But there's no mention that these records are being kept on uh, concurrently on two se two separate plates. And, and that is sets of yeah. And that yeah. and so in, in the the, yeah. the reason that's okay. important is yeah. he doesn't even do that from Mosiah to the end because he's still hoping to get the the manuscript back, right. and so he right. can't. Because right. if he does, and all of a sudden that's another loose end, you know, and so he's okay. he's yeah, yeah he's making sense to me now. Yeah, and so he's tiptoeing here, and so okay. this is from the article on lectures on doubt, and it says the idea of a second smaller set of plates doesn't appear until one first Nephi, which comes after Mosiah through Moroni and dictation order. 
There, Nephi describes his records as an abridgment of his father's record. Later, Nephi describes the new record as not the plates upon which I make a full account of the history of my people. He goes on to say that the larger, more complete volume he has given the name of Nephi, wherefore they are called the plates of Nephi. This is also the first time he describes the large plates as being more secular in in comparison to the small plates. He does not give the small plates a name here, reinforcing that the plates of Nephi, which are referenced in DNC 10, are not the small plates. The secular versus spiritual nature of the plates is repeated in 1 Nephi 19. There, Nephi reiterates the expectation that those plates are to be passed down from generation to generation. He also mentions the smaller plates may have otherwise purposes, which which, which purposes are known unto the Lord, which is a coy hint that these plates were prepared specifically to account for the future lost 116-page manuscript. And so the point here is he's not... He's actually here calling the plates of Nephi the larger sets of plates. So in DNC 10, which we think was written before he does the replacement text, he is saying the plates of Nephi are the unabridged large thing. And so here now, he's kind of creating this secondary set of plates. And then he talks, he's basically telling the reader why they're different. And, and, and to his point, it is kind of like a coy hint where Joseph Smith is almost like, I mentioned earlier, it's like he doth protest too much. He's trying really hard to explain to the reader why there's going to be a difference between this and what the original text might have been. And um, it's a tiny bit suspicious because it is, it's not until he's back writing the, he's, if your theory is right, he's hoping the 116 pages show up. They don't. Now he's started over at the beginning and he's got to figure out how to explain all this. Isn't it convenient that now in first Nephi is where all of a sudden he's starting to explain all these different versions of the plates yep. when he had never, ever mentioned those previously. Yes. And I'm guessing that when, if you were to, if we were to have ever found the 116 pages and actually read them, I'm guessing there was no mention of yeah. lots of different versions of plates for the same timeline. I'm right. Just yeah. There's no way. I mean, there's yeah. no way just because yeah. the rest of the book of Mormon doesn't mention it. And so right. exactly. Um, if we go to the next slide, yeah. the next slide is kind of a tongue in cheek one, but it's just to say, it's like, Joseph Smith is almost like a character in the office when, with that last line about, you know, the purposes might be known unto the Lord. It's almost like he's saying it in the book and then looking deadpanning to the camera, like to the reader, like, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm not trying to make fun. I'm just saying like, that is such an out of place thing, um, which is telling you that Joseph Smith not only is scrambling to figure out how to replace the text, but he also knows he's insecure about it. And he knows he needs to basically try to basic, it's not that he's apologizing to the reader, but he's trying to tell the reader as explicitly as he can, why these differences are there. And it's almost like you're drawing attention to it in a way that um, shows that you, you're, he's aware it's a problem. Basically. It's like a wink. It's, I mean, it is, it's, it's, it it reminds me of when Joseph Smith writes into the book of Mormon, a prophecy of his own awesomeness in the future. Yeah, It's like, Whoa, that's so it is pretty bold. What is (laughs) it? And that's the thing. It's like, when you know the end, you can write the beginning, but the problem is when you, when you know that, when you know the end, but you're also aware that you have to change the beginning, you know that you're, you have issues. And again, in the back of his head, he might be thinking, Lucy might have that manuscript. So I got to make sure I explain why this is different because if she releases it and it's different, yeah. I got to, the reader needs to know why yeah. it's different. And so he's still covering his tracks here. I think with that fear in the back of his head that she might expose him with, with, the, with the manuscript. Got it. And That's- so basically the... This is the same article from Lectures on Doubt. And they they talk about how he continues to define this as he writes the replacement text. And so they say, um, this second set of plates is first referred to as the small plates in Jacob uh, 1.1, but are still not described as the plates of Nephi or the small plates of Nephi. In fact, 
The first and only proper name to given to them is the plates of Jacob. It is unlikely that this could have been an error where book of Jacob was intended since the description specifically alludes to the physical crafting of the plates. In contrast to the singular nature of the plates of Nephi from Mosiah through Moroni, which are sometimes described in conjunction with the brass plates, but never the small plates, the large and small plates are nearly always differentiated from each other from first Nephi through words of Mormon. This pattern spawns multiple authors, including Nephi, Jacob, Jerem, uh, Abinadam, and Mormon. Um, when the text is read in Mosiah priority order, it is clear that the small plates were a late invention in the creation of the text. And so what he's saying, again, kind of like what we were saying with Brent Metcalf's work is we see them constantly splitting up these plates until he finishes replacement text. And then they're just an afterthought and forgotten. And that shows you that, again, he is using he's developing the idea of the small plates in the small plate section because he has to. But because he had already written the rest of it, he has no chance to go back there and smooth it out, because if he does that, obviously the witnesses are going to know he's editing the text and that's a big problem. And so he's stuck with basically trying his best to um, uh, basically uh, apologize is the wrong word, but it constantly explain why there's these plates. And then all of a sudden they just it's an afterthought. And let me, if I can just summarize to make sure that I understand what you're saying. And I think you've already said this probably multiple times from Mosiah to, to Moroni in, in the book of Mormon, there's no mention of the small plates, no, lots of different plates, multiple versions of the same plates. Correct. Correct. <laughs> that's just that's a, a problem. It's it, a huge, it, obvious glaring problem. <laughs> it is. And it's one of those things again, like as a believer, and again, you just, you just don't think about out, it. He's holding out thinking that the 116 pages might show up. And so he has no need to manufacture this story of multiple plates until he's pretty sure that that, that the 160 pages aren't going to show up. And then he needs to then come up with the story. And then voila, it appears first Nephi. Yeah. And I would even, I would even take that a step further. And I wouldn't even say that he has no need to do it. I would say he's afraid to do it because if he does it, if he creates that second set of plates and then all of a sudden the manuscript pops up, yeah. then all of a sudden he pops the manuscript in and then people are going to be like, what do you, what happened to that second set of plates? So he's forced by Lucy, just the fear of Lucy exposing him forces him to change his plans in a way that then he has to address at the end, but he can't address it until the beginning, until he writes the beginning because right. of what you said, he's holding out. And so it's, it's a big problem. And it, again, it's confusing, but you know, when you have multiple books of the book of Mormon that are all referencing this this uh, differentiation differentiation in plates, and then it's just forgotten for the rest of the book. Yeah. That tells you that this yeah. is being written with that express purpose, and it's being written at the end. Totally okay. That's wow. That's powerful. And this is actually what we've been talking about a lot this episode, which is just to say, you know, that he waited until the last second. Um, so basically, it's just saying it's a late edition, which occurs only after he has to replace it, and it fits in well with the translation process. Um, and the dictation order just, you know, it's basically reiterating that same thing. So we don't have to go over that again because we just did that. So we can actually go to the next slide and we'll, we'll wrap up the small plates issue, which again, this is from the same article. And he says, the most obvious impetus for Smith introducing the small plates rather than stick to his divinely revealed plan of translating the plates of Nephi is time. The 116 pages represented an abridgment of the plates of Nephi by promising the source material in place of the abridgment. Smith had unwittingly signed up to produce a manuscript much larger and more comprehensive than the original one. A second, smaller volume would be a very attractive alternative. This theory elegantly explains the Book of Mormon's emphasis on the size difference between the two sets of plates, one being smaller, one being larger. It can also explain the supposed difference in content. As mentioned before, the small plates are self-described as less interested in history and more interested in spiritual matters. 
This description has long puzzled readers of the Book of Mormon, who often note that both sections of the Book of Mormon are a blend of history and theological discourse. The supposed difference in tone is difficult to detect. However, this explanation allows Smith to breeze through hundreds of years of history once the origin story of the Nephites and Lamanites is adequately explained. And this is really important because, again, it shows that DNC 10 is telling him, you are not going to use the abridgment. You're going to use the full source to fill in the details. And then he gets to it, and it's a much shorter section. And so then all of a sudden, it's like, well, he can't say I'm using the the main source that DNC told him to, or DNC 10 told him to, because if he says that, then he can't say it's only supposed to focus on spiritual matters. Because why would it focus on spiritual matters when you're using the source that was the the source for the abridgment? You know what I mean? Like, so he has to then create a small set of plates to explain why it's shorter and less focused on history. Because if he uses a set of plates that DNC 10 tells him to, that's going to have more history than the original text would have had. Yeah, that's powerful. It's a big deal. And, and it's, it's, it's again, it's one of those things that gives you a window into how Joseph Smith is not just creating the Book of Mormon, but dealing with situations where he loses control and how, again, we talked about this earlier, but when we talk about how Joseph Smith was too unlearned to create the Book of Mormon, he was able to create the Book of Mormon, but he did leave, leave clues because of the fact that he was not able to do this in a way that most authors would. He was forced to constantly make changes. And what, you know, it is like you have a grand scheme, like in a movie, they've got this grand scheme and then all of a sudden it's an action movie. And then all of a sudden uh, something goes wrong. And once that thing goes wrong, you start changing your plan. All of a sudden there's the mad scramble in the movie. Well, that's basically what happens here. One thing goes wrong for Joseph Smith, which is a big one. And then he loses the manuscript and everything he had planned has to change. And then once it changes, he has to go back to the start and account for it. And by doing so, he's leaving his fingerprints everywhere. Yeah. All right. That's, that's brilliant. And then, you know, so now we're, we're kind of out of the, the issue of the actual dictation process, but this is um, some quick notes on some stuff that Gerald and Sandra Tanner had done a long time ago. And it's basically that the replacement text of the Book of Mormon is considered like the black hole of the Book of Mormon, because what happens is Joseph Smith is afraid that Lucy Harris might have the original text because he's afraid she might have the text. He has to be incredibly vague and careful in whatever he puts in the replacement text, because if he puts specific information that is contradicted, she could expose him. And so he has to be very careful not putting anything in there that he might not remember correctly. And this leads him to be intentionally vague for the entire um, replacement text of the Book of Mormon. So I'm, I'm guessing you have examples of the... Yeah, so we're going to have just a few slides going through this, and then okay. and then we'll, we'll, we'll be kind of okay, wrapping so up. Just to be clear, you're saying that from Nephi, first Nephi... To before Mosiah, Joseph's super vague about certain things. And you're giving yeah. examples. Okay. And, and the Tanners do such a good job here. So um, just as with the small plates, you can see Joseph Smith is constantly giving the reader excuses to, as to why there's difference with the replacement text. And so Jacob writes that he should write upon these plates a few of the things which I consider to be most precious that I should not touch, save it were lightly concerning the history of this people, which are called the people of Nephi. He said that the history of his people should be engraven upon his other plates. And so this is what we're talking about in the last section where Jacob is really where the small plates story kind of really takes hold. And it, again, it, just to point out, that seems odd for a record of their people, but it makes sense once you realize that Joseph Smith needs to accomplish telling the reader why the stories are not going to be the same because of the fact that he's got this fear over his head that Lucy could release the original text, which would have a much different history and a much different story than what he's going to release. So tell me if, I've, if I'm understanding this right. So if you look at post-Mosiah Book of Mormon, he's getting into like commanders in the battle and where the battles are happening and how many people are fighting and 
movements of troops is as just an example of like this level of detail. Um, well, that was that, yeah. that level of detail you're saying doesn't appear prior to Mosiah. Well, that level of detail is even a, a few levels of detail from where we're going to go because he doesn't even he's he's afraid in the, the replacement text to name the kings. I mean, we're not even talking like small details. We're talking like he is really trying hard not to name anyone or any like place who the leaders are who the government yeah. leaders and are. so and so we'll go through some of those examples because again okay. there's more okay. there's more on the lds discussion site and then there's even more on the tanner's article but okay. so this is the lack of names so this is from the tanner's article and it says only 11 people are named in the first book of nephi and no additional names are given at all in second nephi yet joseph names 10 old testament characters by name and even prophetically speaks of jesus some 600 years before his birth and claims that he knew the name of the apostle of the Lamb of John. So he can't name any of the characters that are with the people that they're writing the records for, but he can prophesy not just of the specific year of Jesus, but of the Lamb uh, that the apostle of the Lamb was John. And, and those are details that tell you that Joseph Smith is working from being very careful with the contemporary stuff, but he's throwing out a lot of Old Testament names because those can't be contradicted because those are already established in the Bible. Um, then it says, Joseph goes to great lengths to avoid giving out names of extended family members, likely because he couldn't remember them and knew that those could easily be exposed. And so in second Nephi, you have my father called the children of Laman, his sons and his daughters and said unto them, behold, my sons and my daughters of my firstborn. After my father had made unto speaking, he caused the sons of, and daughters of Lemuel to be brought before him. He spake unto them saying, behold, my sons and, and my daughters who are the sons and the daughters of my second son. So like, look at that. It's almost like you're writing a book and you don't have the names of the characters. And like, so you can't even say like the name of your second son. Like it'd be one thing to be like, they're the sons and daughters of so-and-so, but he's even, even then he can't say the name. And so you have these long stretches of history with no new names because he only remembers certain names that he knows are going to line up. And the rest of them, he's just like, I can't because I don't want to be wrong. So he's afraid to get specific. He doesn't know any of the immediate things that should be really obviously known. Right. And yet he knows things in the future because they were written in the later part of the book that yep. he didn't know at all. Yeah, and, and the things he's knowing about in the future are things that are established in the Bible, so he can't contradict himself there because right. he's working off of another, obviously, another text altogether. Okay. Um, and so this is more from the Tanners. When we get, um, when we get the, we then get just two new names in the book of Jacob and two more new names in the book of Jerem. So um, it, at this point, they state that 238 years have passed, which means the Book of Mormon gives you only four new names in a 230-year window of history. <laughs> I mean, that's just like there's only a thousand. So that's basically a quarter of yeah, the, the timeline in the book. And so they're giving you right? all of all of this filler in these pages and they're intentionally leaving out the details because, again, four new names, you know, in, in a realistic standpoint, you're talking how many generations is that? And you get four names. <laughs> um, and then this is where I was talking about with the king. So um, it says now Nephi began to be old. And he saw that he must soon die. Wherefore, he anointed a man to be a king and a ruler over his people. Now, according to the reign of reigns of the kings. Later in the chapter, Jacob says, the people of Nephi under the reign of the second king began to grow hard in their hearts. And again, no new names are given of the kings until we come out of the 116 pages. And then Joseph immediately starts naming the kings. You got Mosiah and Benjamin. And so, again, this is showing that he is calling all of the kings Nephi and then not saying the name. And then all of a sudden he gets out of this replacement text and all of a sudden he's naming just like normal there's no problem and it tells you the insecurity that he has because he doesn't have the text to pull the names from mm. 
I mean, uh, it's just to me, it's a pretty simple thing. And again, it, this is way worse when you read read it in more detail. I tried just to pick a few examples for our, our presentation, but if you go to LDS discussions, you know, slash 116 pages, you'll see it. Um, and then uh, the Tanners talk about when they come out of the black hole. So um, while Joseph goes to great lengths not to name any new characters, locations, and events in the replacement text, the moment he exits this spot, he the names start kicking off, and so. They say, for example, just as we come out of the black hole, we find this reference in Mosiah 1.1. King Benjamin had three sons, and he called their names Mosiah and Helaman and Helaman. So basically, earlier, remember we were talking about, I just kept saying my sons and daughters and my second son. Here, the moment you get into Mosiah, because the belief is that Mosiah may have been partially written before Martin left, but that Martin would have only taken up to Mosiah. And so immediately you have names. And so not so only... He couldn't, he couldn't name Laman and Lemuel's children. Right. But but it, but he does refer to them by saying they're children. Yeah, and then all of a sudden he's able to name Mo Mosiah or Benjamin's children. Right? Yeah, and and, and again I I, we don't want to get off too much, but you know yeah. one of the things that you hear a lot about the Book of Mormon being so incredible is they'll say how could Joseph Smith have had so many people named in the Book of Mormon without contradicting himself? And and the reason is because we'll get to it more later. But the Book of Mormon is a linear timeline, right? So most of the names that are used, you use them, and then that time passes, and you never have to go back to them. And the replacement text tells you that because the replacement text tells you that all of those names that were throwaway names that Joseph uses in the rest of the book in the replace in the original 116 pages, whatever names he used, he knew he couldn't remember them. And so when you say, oh my goodness, there's like two, well, is it 200 names that are all in the book of Mormon. Well, in this case, it gives you a really good clue as to the reason why there's a lot of names because he's throwing out names here and there of the sons and daughters and well, mostly the sons and the kings and all this. And then the replacement text, he's like, just there's nothing. And, and it tells you, again, the insecurity that he has when he's writing this text. And it also lines up with the di dictation order that Brent Metcalf lined up so well. Yeah, right. And um, so I think, where are we now? We're um, Okay, so now this one's a really cool one because this is from a, a Book of Mormon apologist and the Tanners include it in their article. So on the next slide, um, this is a Book of Mormon apologist, uh, J.N. Washburn. And he talks about the last 19 verses of Omni, Omni which is, the last 19 verses provide a different kind of study altogether. They constitute a unit quite unlike anything else in the Book of Mormon. These last 19 verses give the account of the affairs of the Nephite people between uh, the approximate dates 175 and 124 BC. Few paragraphs go together chronologically. We have now seen that at least seven important items of information, some of them essential, are first brought to our attention in the last 19 verses. This, however, does not exhaust the possibilities of this interesting little chapter. Not only are a number of prominent men first named here, not only are we first informed of movements of utmost significance, not only are three are the three peoples of the Book of Mormon brought together, not only is there vital material concerning records presented here, not only are other valuable matters divulged, but there are also numerous details of vast interest to be found within these three pages. It must be readily seen that these 19 verses are unusual. Is it not surprising that so large a number of unrelated fragments are thrown together in this small space? Nowhere else in the entire book is such diverse material found in so crowded a setup. And so this right here is from an apologist who's basically saying, it is really weird that right when Joseph Smith um, is about to get um, out of this section, he's just throwing all sorts of stuff together, almost like he's trying to, to basically bridge the gap of all of these different ideas. And it just shows that, you know, again, when you look at um, the Book of Mormon dictation process, you're going, you know, starting with First Nephi and you're getting to, to Mosiah. And this would tell you that by the time he gets to this part, he feels like he is past anything that he's going to get called out for 
if Lucy Harris comes. And then all of a sudden he realizes, I'm just going to throw everything I need to throw at to try to tie this into where I started back up with in Mosiah. So but you're saying that by the time he writes Omni, and where does Omni appear in the sequence in the Book of Mormon? Well, it's it's um so it's it, after Jacob, right? It's it, it's it's so it would go Jerem, Omni, Words of Mormon, and then Mosiah. So basically, he's you know, and remember we talked about there's not a lot of words in these chapters where we're talking about the wherefore, therefore. So this is right before Words of Mormon, and then it's going to jump into where the, the the text picks back up with where it where it left off. Mosiah. Yeah, so it's going to be like two two books before Mosiah, but you know short book. So we're not, you know, it's, it's pretty close in time. So basically, so basically Joseph knows now that, that in the chronology, here's, here's the list. Yeah. Jo Joseph knows that. Okay. Yeah. So it's right at the very end. Yep. He knows that he knows that he's out of the woods in terms of fearing. Yeah. yeah. Is it suspicious that once we know that Joseph feels like he's out of the woods in terms of fearing to share details that that could also appear in the 116 pages there's this yep. explosion of specificity yeah that happens which which could be easily explained as a writing device of trying to bridge and fill in details and bridge the the vague um unspecific first several replacement texts uh you know replacement uh you know, books to what was the 116 pages uh, to then go ahead and continue and and then plop yeah. down the the books that got written earlier, yeah. but, but but chronologically are supposed to appear later. Yeah, I mean, it's just it just shows that once he gets to a point where he feels comfortable enough that he has passed contradicting himself for the the things, he's just going to throw all of the stuff in a really short window because he needs to effectively get. Uh, the loose ends tied up between the replacement text and Mosiah. And so, and and I don't know for sure when this apologist wrote this, because this article from the Tanners is from a long time ago. It's pretty possible that this was written before the Mosiah priority was really established by Brent Metcalf. So it's even more fun. It's kind of funny. Yeah. To think that th this is noticed. And I would have to wonder what would be the response if you notice this and then realize that this is yeah. part of the replacement text, the end of the replacement text. Cause then all of a sudden it might set off those yeah. alarm bells of like, Oh, now that he realizes he's safe, he's just going to throw all the details out because now he can do it. Maybe it's with new names, new directions, but he's, he's just throwing all sorts of stuff out. Whereas we talked about in a 238 year window, he gives no names, you know, no Kings. All of a sudden here, he's just, you know, they talk about just detail after detail. And that's a red flag that tells you the author of the book of Mormon at this point is done being careful because they're past the point of being potentially exposed and they're just going full out. Yeah. It's a big deal, I think. And, um, that's funny. So that, that takes us pretty much to the end of, of this part. Now we'll get to some apologetics. There, the apologetics on the last 116 pages are a little goofy. So are not, this just, this topic is not covered as much as other ones, but um, Matt Roper uh, had written an article I had used on the website. Cause it was one of the few ones I could find that really dove into it. And he just says, if the plot against the prophet had succeeded, it could conceivably had undermined the faith of some of Joseph's closest supporters who helped with whose help and devotion were crucial in the success of early Mormonism Early Mormons already faced an uphill battle. Um, the prophet's enemies would hardly have needed to produce the original manuscript to harden the hearts um, and hinder the work from progressing. All they would have had to have done was to print an altered version. After that, the manuscript might have been destroyed or lost, but the effect would have been the same. They would have claimed the corrupted version was the earlier one, which is effectively saying what I said earlier. Like, if you really believe that Lucy Smith had a, her whole goal was to produce an altered text, she would have done it anyway. So I, yeah, I don't, I just. Yeah, that feels like motivated reasoning. You're almost it is. creating 
a conspiracy yeah. uh, to justify something that makes no sense. Because yeah. what would have led objectively to less people doubting and questioning? Um, it clearly would have been Joseph reproducing the text. Identically, yeah, that's just and it. And showing Lucy's changes to be a fraud. And that's, yeah. that's what we've already discussed. I mean, uh, yeah. South Park would have never needed to do that episode. Like if God could see 2000 years ahead, right. God would have saw the South Park episode and yeah. how many people that alone took out of the church, right? Those people. Yeah, it's too, just, right? you know, it's one of those things where it's like, again, you know, and we have this, this, this ongoing theme with a lot of these historical issues and with the scriptures. Well, what kind of, some people, I, I mean, I refer to too, like this trickster God, like God allows Joseph Smith to be tricked constantly or to be proven wrong constantly, whether it's the book of Abraham or talking about where the people of the Americas came from, all of these things that he, you know, the revelation saying that the Lamanites are at the borders of Missouri even though those people have nothing to do with Book of Mormon times. And so all of these times, jo God is allow is willing to let Joseph Smith be proven a fraud, except in this one time where Joseph Smith is in control of the revelation. And then all of a sudden his excuses, he will not allow his, his, his prophet to fall. But then on the other ones he does. And so it's just to your point, it's like you're, you're creating, you know, you're, you have a solution in search of a problem. And in this case, it's, it's, it's looking for a problem that never even materialized. So it, it would have been more, maybe a little bit more reliable if, if Lucy had come out at the end and said, I have the, the original manuscript, aha, I got you. And just like sucker, I did a, a, a whole, <laughs> whole separate, but, but none of that ever happens. And so yeah. again, <laughs> it, it just shows you that God and Joseph, neither of them knew what happened to the manuscript. And so the whole time they're tiptoeing yeah. with this problem right. in mind and it never happened. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big issue. And um, yeah, that's a great point. Why didn't jo if Lucy ended up never, we never really hear from Lucy again about the manuscripts. Yeah. Then Joseph could have just replicated them and, and we would have been fine. Yeah. I mean, like I said, this was a win-win situation for him and uh, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, we, we, we covered this earlier and it's basically the same thing we had, you know, if he had translated the text correctly, he would have been proven a prophet. Um, if Lucy had altered it, it would have been obvious because there's, you know, they were, it was on full scat paper. It's very tight. You, we, we showed a picture of the manuscript in the last episode. It's tightly written together um, it would be very difficult. And to your point, like um, we had mentioned the Charles Anthon visit and how Joseph kind of altered the story and wrote in a line about the sealed it book. It it's was, really obvious because yeah. the ink is different. The writing is all of it's yeah. different. And, and it's so in the margins, it's like yep. between words. And... Yeah. And so and the only way they could have done it would have been to completely recreate the, the, the manuscript. But then at that point they could do it anyways. And so um, the final thing is we've talked about before, but God had a lot of different tools at his disposal to deal with this. He could have um, had an angel go take the manuscript as he did the, the plates. If an angel can grab the physical gold plates and the angel should be able to get the manuscript and bring it back to Joseph, they could have struck Lucy Harris dumb as we see in you know the book of Mormon, the Bible, where all of a sudden right. they're struck dumb and they can't. Um, or they could have shown Joseph where they were in the stone, which he claimed to be able to see any lost object or what happened to him. And none of those things happen. And that no, tells he you. Could have, he could have sent an angel with the flaming sword to Lucy. Yeah. Threatening Lucy that if she messed with the plans or doesn't give those 116 pages back, she would be destroyed. Where was the, well, yeah. was the angel and, with the flaming sword? And that's the thing, like, you know, and that's where, the thing, like, wait, where's an angel with the flaming sword when you need it? Exactly. And that's the thing, like, you know, we, I, I'd done a, a thing on Twitter a while back and people were really offended because I said things that the, that God sent an angel with a flaming sword for Joseph Smith's sex life. Things that the angel didn't, the lost manuscript, racism yeah, in the church, exactly. you know, book of Abraham being wrong. And it's just, again, you don't want to, I'm not trying to make fun of it. Suicides, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. And, I, and I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm just saying yeah. like, again, why is it that these things only happen when they either benefit, bolster, 
uh, Joseph Smith. And, and, and that tells you right. why, because Joseph's why, the one why, doing it. Why didn't the angel with the flaming sword appear the third time that Martin asked Joseph right. for the manuscript and said, Martin, cut out the asking for the, yeah, you know, or I'm going to kill you. Like, yep. That would have been a great thing. It just would have saved all this problem. Right? It would have. And, and again, we, we, I don't want to go backwards too much, but the whole thing in the Come Follow Me manual is saying 2,400 years earlier, God knew and prepared the second set of plates because he knew it. Oh my but then gosh. the revelation, the contemporary ones have no mention that that, that they knew. And, and again, it tells you how honest. much of the history of the church is backfitted into these these stories. Um, yeah. But anyways, we'll, we'll keep going on this apologetic stuff. So um, so Roper actually responds to uh, the Tanner's criticisms about the timeline of Jesus. And so... He says the Tanner's interpretation of this passage is not the only nor even the most reasonable explanation of it. As I see it, one may reach several different conclusions depending on how one interprets the references to Christ's coming in verses 24 through 26. Here I will suggest four possible interpretations. Alma's reference to Christ's coming could refer to Christ's birth, Christ's atonement, Christ's post-resurrection appearance of the Nephites in the New World, or Christ's general coming, including all aspects of his life and mission in the meridian of time, his birth, life, teachings, suffering, death, and resurrection, culminating for the Nephites in his appearance to the, I'm not sure, I, that, I think I was typing, uh, shortly after he rose, uh, oh, sh- appearance to them shortly after he rose from the dead. So basically what, what Roper is saying is that the Tanner's criticism about knowing about Jesus ahead of time and the specificity early versus late, it really doesn't matter because if you redefine what they meant in the prophecy, then it can mean anything. He's literally saying in number four, it could not just mean his birth or his death. It could mean when his message got across the world, when, you know, when uh, the the resurrection, when his teachings reach, I mean, it, it really just waters this down to nothing. And it creates again, more problems than it answers. And that's one of the problems that I, in these overview projects, I want to continue to highlight these apologetics, when they think they're answering one thing, they're creating problems on another end that have to be addressed at the same time. This feels like special pleading. It is. And I mean, it just motivated is. Motivated reasoning. It's just re- It's like, okay, when Joseph said translate, what he meant yeah. was reveal. You know what I yeah. mean? Re- it's not a translation, it's a revelation. Like, yeah, it's the same words, thing. When do words get to just mean what they what they say yes i mean it's, it's just it's the same it's, this is the same stuff you're gonna see with the book of abraham when they're like well when it says written by his own hand upon papyri it could be that it's copies of copies of copies it's like no that's not what he said because he also writes that abraham's personal signature is on the facsimile but again this is what happens when you redefine the words at face value and so one of the things i always try to say with the overview is i take the evidence at face value i do not take it and redefine it because when you do that when you redefine words when you redefine the events as they happened then you're redefining him with a, with a need for your community. But in this case, you can only take what Joseph Smith writes at face value because Joseph's not here to say, no, 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 I, I totally did not mean I was translating. I meant that I was, you know what I mean? Like go back in time and ask Joseph Smith these apologetics and he would laugh at you. There's no way Joseph Smith, if you could time travel and say, here's what the church in 2022 is saying you were actually doing. He'd be like, no, 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 that is not what I'm doing. I am, I got this straight from God. This is the history of the Americas because that's what he portrayed outside of the Book of Mormon as well. I mean, it's just, it's it's pretty simple unless you're trying to redefine things to fit, to solve a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so this is just to say why why the Tanners and Brett Metcalf got this right. And it's just to say, you know, um, the, the verse that he's pointing to, it says, and now we only wait to hear the joyful news declared unto us by the mouth of angels of his coming for the time cometh, we know not how soon. Would to God that it might be in my day, but let it be sooner or later in it, I will rejoice. And again, so that's Alma 1325, yes. where Alma's speaking very vaguely 
about the coming of Christ. Yes. And so that's why the Tanners and, and Brett Metcalf both point out that because those prophecies were given at the beginning of the book, there's no way they would say this. And Roper's saying, well, maybe he wasn't talking about Christ coming, but his teachings. And 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 so what I'm saying is the Tanners and Metcalf have it right because Nephi gives a very specific uh, promise of the, the coming. And yet Alma here says, we know not how soon. No matter how you want to lay it out, he would know by basic math how much time is left in that prophecy. And that is the point that the Tanners and Metcalf is making. It's just how does Nephi give such a specific number? And then the middle of the story, once you get out of that replacement text, all of a sudden they just completely forget that it was ever said because it wasn't said because it wasn't said before that section. And so the reason they don't know is because they they were never told. And it's just, it's really simple when you look at the text in the order of production. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just like so much with Mormon truth claims things are so confusing or they require such incredible backbends and contortions and distortions. Or once you know the full history, everything makes sense. Yeah. That's just it. Once you, and that's why I always talk about this as a puzzle. Cause once you start putting these pieces together and they fit naturally, when you look at it at face value, it's actually pretty satisfying because they do fit and it makes so much sense. But at the same time, if you look at the apologetics, they're just jamming a square, you know, a square peg in a circle hole and when you do that, you create damage elsewhere that they just walk away from because they feel like they solved that one problem and they're okay. And, and that, to me, is, again, where apologetics, and we'll, we'll, we're going to hammer this on every overview project because it really shows that apologetics, not necessarily that the people writing them are intentionally trying to lie to you, but just that the interest is in giving plausibility to that one point and not even considering the the damage it makes to another truth claim of the church. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's and, powerful. So this is another area where Roper continues to kind of reinterpret the Book of Mormon to make this fit. And so he says, in responding to the Tanners and Metcalf, this is actually from our overview project, so this is, I guess, me, but in responding to the Tanners and Metcalf's claim that this verse uh, poses a serious problem for the Book of Mormon, uh, John Twetness has argued that Alma and perhaps other Book of Mormon prophets in in Mosiah through Moroni may have been unfamiliar with the prophecies on the small plates of Nephi. The Tanners argue that this explanation is unreasonable because Alma had received all of the plates from Mosiah before becoming chief judge and should therefore have been familiar with their contents, including the 600-year prophecy. The Tanners' objections dissolve when we recall that Alma had a, a voluminous volume, I don't know how to say it, voluminous book, library of scriptural records far beyond anything we have today, not merely a few books. In addition to the brass plates, the account of Ether, and the voluminous record of the Nephite history on the large plates, Alma also would have had the record of I don't know how to say it. The Zenophyte coffee. The Zenophyte. Zenophyte. It's been a long time on that one. Colony. The record kept by Alma as he. Oh, Helam. Helaman. Helam. From which Mormon made pan of his abridgment of the book of Mosiah. I feel like there's some typos there. But anyways, and perhaps other records as well, including the small plates. This would be a fairly imposing corpus to read, much less to master and remember. So yeah, sorry, this is from Roper. But so what he's saying is that the Tanners and the Metcalfs are claiming this is a problem but they're not understanding how many records they had. It's like saying, he's like saying, basically I have a whole, he has a whole like cave full of bookshelves and you're upset that he doesn't know this one prophecy, but it probably got lost in the shuffle. And so what he's doing is he's reinterpreting the book of Mormon to basically say that that prophecy is so insignificant that they would forget about it after those first few books. Well, he's saying that there's so many books to read. Right. It would have been easy to miss. It would have been, except for the fact that if you read the Book of Mormon, they are so aware of this prophecy in the early books that it's not something that's written in a book and then put on a bookshelf. This is something that is 
followed very closely through the replacement text. And so I guess his point is basically saying it gets lost in the shuffle. My point would be to say, how does something get lost in the shuffle when it's such an important part? This is not, you know, um, well, actually, let's go to the next next slide if you're okay with that. Well, I, I oh yeah, I we go first. I I don't know if the, what what's that. So no, I was just gonna say. So this every time I see things like this, it reminds me of the scene from Office Space. And in Office Space, if you haven't seen it, um, they create this scheme to steal money from from their boss, and it goes awry because they make a miscalculation. And if you play the clip, it just this reminds me of this every time when I hear this. I must have put a decimal point in the wrong place or something. Shit, I always do that. I always mess up some mundane detail. Oh, well, this is not a mundane detail, Michael. Hey. <laughs> so again, I, I realize that's kind of, you know, tongue in cheek yeah, no, like, here, but what's, what's a bigger deal than the date of the coming of yeah, the Messiah, right? Exactly. I mean, we're not talking about like saying, how did they forget that such and such King might've died in a certain year? Or how do they forget that they were in some city or something? This is like the overreaching. When's Jesus coming? Yeah. This is the biggest yeah. deal in the book of Mormon. And so to say it got it's lost the biggest in deal in all scripture, like all yeah. of the old Testament is like we're waiting for the Messiah. Yep. And then the Messiah comes supposedly in the New Testament. And then all of a sudden it's like, when is he coming again? Like yeah. that is the question of all Judeo-Christian scriptures. Yeah. And, and and it's just, and then, you know, to, to you know, again, if you're talking about having this massive uh, corpus of records, the idea that this massively important prophecy would not make its way into other records again is they're, they're trying to imply that it's on this one small page of this one small plate of this one small book in this gigantic cave. And it's just, you're redefining the importance of that prophecy in the Book of Mormon if you want to do that. And I just, that's why I just, I every time I hear that, I always laugh because it's like, that's not, this is not a small detail. It's not a mundane detail. This is a huge problem. And it it tracks perfectly if you look at the dictation order. It's also a problem that he knew the date because doesn't Jesus specifically state, no man knoweth the day or the hour where I come? Yeah, although right. I don't, is that for the resurrection or is that for, but you're right. Cause yeah. Cause that would be when he's coming oh, to, to the right. Americas. That would be for the second coming. Yeah. But, Not but either way, I mean, coming. it kind of applies cause it would be, you know, the whole idea is that they know exactly when he's going to come to the Americas and it's just, they, and they know his name, all of these things are in, you know, yeah. we'll get into this, some of that stuff more in, yeah, why in the future ones. The, why didn't the actual yeah. direct descendants of uh, alleged descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you yeah. know, David, Solomon, they are literally on the ground in the Holy Land, literal Jesus's ancestors. They don't get to know Jesus's name. They yeah. don't get to know when Jesus is coming. Why, why, why are the Nephites privileged? And then when you add to that the fact that North American Native Americans didn't even have the ability to write, yep. didn't have a written language, yep. let alone there's no evidence that they ever wrote anything on plates or had the yeah. ability to make plates at that level during the time period of the book of mormon yeah it's over it's swamping it's overwhelming evidence that this yeah. is just silliness and, and again you know not to beat the dead horse from our, our last couple uh episodes about the gold plates but if you want to use the purity tablets to look at how many plates you would need just for the book of mormon you would need a cave just for the book of mormon plates so to then say there's all these other you know corpus of, of records it just when you talk about anachronistic metal plates with records you're just in a, you're in another area where those problems just keep stacking on each other. If you really want to go that route, it doesn't and, work. And why haven't any explorers in central yep. North central or South America found additional plates yep. that are written in reformed Egyptian that were in some cave somewhere? Cause yep. where did all those plates go? Where exactly. did all the other unabridged plates go? Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's the whole problem with it. You know, 
people will say, oh, you know, they haven't they haven't looked in the right spot yet. But again, it's one of those things where at some point, if you want to make these claims that there's just so many records they got lost in the shuffle, then it's like to your point, where where's everything else and why is there no references to these other plates? They only make references to the brass plates uh, that they took with them and the plates in Nephi, and then later on this this set of plates in Jacob. Yeah, That's there's it. Just so many problems where when you look at it in context you just yep. can't explain it all the way yeah and that's just it yeah. and so yeah. um so now we we, we end how we began can we go back one page really quick oh sure sure because sure. i want to just hide just go this really quick so basically oh, wait, we I, missed it wait we missed this we did that one and so okay, we'll, okay. okay. so so in, in roper's response by the 116 pages he talks about um how if you look at the similarities between the small plates and the large plates you'll actually see that the small plates were indeed known to the to the, to the people after the, the replacement text and not an afterthought by Joseph to retrofill in. And one of the examples he gives, I think, is actually perfect because in First Nephi, it says the compass which had been prepared of, of the Lord. Then in Second Nephi, it says the ball or compass which was prepared for my father by the hand of the Lord. And then when we get to Alma, it says, and now, my son, I have somewhat to say concerning this thing which our fathers call a ball or director or our fathers called it Liahona which is being interpreted a compass and the Lord prepared it. And it just shows because once he's out of the replacement text, it's a lot more specific. Whereas when he's in the replacement text, he's being very careful and just kind of, you know, calling it a ball or a compass. And so is his basic argument there that see, there's an object that that has continuity all the way through. And that's what he's trying to say. And it's just uh, his, I think it's, it's like nine pages of examples to basically say, if I cherry pick these, you could see that the large plate authors were familiar with the small plates and my point is, one, in this one example, you could see what a difference there is in the description later. But more importantly, if you have the same author for the beginning of the book as the end, there's going to be a lot of similarities. It's not, you know, it's kind of like with anachronisms. One anachronism tells you it's out of place, even if you had even if you had a bunch of, of hits. And in this case, you're going to have a lot of similarities because it's 273,000 words in the book. And, and I'm just pointing out that when he makes the, these claims, it's like, well, you know, look at how much this is his example and look how much more specific it is once he's out of what we call the, you know, what the Tanner's called the black hole. Um, and so, you know, again, we, we don't have to spend too much time there. I just, I thought that was a good example to show that he's trying to say they're exactly the same. And I would just say it's not because he's naming it the Liahona later. He's giving that it a little bit more so detail. Fascinating. I did yeah. not realize that the word Liahona wasn't used until Alma. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that's the case because I'm not I positive because this is his example. I, I don't think it, it is. I just Googled it. Yeah. The only place in the Book of Mormon where the word Liahona is used is in the Book of Alma. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I imagine Joseph wouldn't have would have remembered the the word Liahona. Yeah, the only thing I could think of is maybe because the Liahona was only mentioned briefly, and maybe by the time he gets back to the small plates and he's dictating, he kind of forgets what he called it, and so he just keeps it vague in that regard. Because you know, it's like <laughs> the thing is, I, I do believe Joseph would reference back to his to what they were working on, but I don't believe he would be able to know like where to reference like i think he would probably look at where where he left off and then know where to pick back up but i don't think he was going back a long way to look for one word because that'd be really difficult with a manuscript that as we saw it so yeah anyways it's just it's a quick reference and then so now we're kind of at the end of this one and um end as we began yes we end as we began so a little chiasmus here for you but just basically (laughs) once joseph lost control he became powerless to locate the manuscript god was able to physically remove the plates and the spectacles but apparently was unable to tell Joseph where the manuscript was, what happened to it, or just to have an angel retrieve it for him. Um, and then the small plates, as we talked about, was just a late invention that did not happen until after he had finished the Book of Mormon. And this is really important when you look at DNC 10, which is actually telling him to translate 
or you know take off of the unabridged history as opposed plates to a Nephi. smaller set yeah the plates of Nephi, yeah yeah the plates of nephi and then in the replacement text we can see the fingerprints everywhere that joseph smith is trying to be so intentionally vague so that if the replacement or if the original manuscript were to come back up Lucy would not be able to expose him because at least even though the story would be different, he wouldn't have names and places in there that would be directly contradicted by the text that Lucy Harris might still hold. Yeah. Wow. And, and again, any one of these items might be able to be explained in isolation. Yeah. But when you lay it out in the timeline and you get the understanding of what was going on with, with Lucy and Martin and Joseph, all of a sudden everything makes perfect sense and it's yeah. way more plausible th than, than the apologetic narrative, which well, is true about all of Mormon history. <laughs> it, it is. But I mean, like for me, the 116 pages are really important because when you take those three things together, it really shows you how Joseph Smith is, is dictating the book of Mormon, how he's adjusting to situations where he loses control. And it shows you that the revelations from God lose power just as Joseph's, you know, stone, yeah would lose yeah. power. And those things are really important because when you read the Book of Mormon from start to finish, you don't realize the dictation order is off. And so you don't pick up on those clues. But once you see it, then all of a sudden you get this perfect it. window into Joseph's, um, both, both his insecurities in the replacement text, as well as the methods he was using to create the Book of Mormon. And I think it's a the event of losing the manuscript is a really important one to the church. But I think the replacement text is so important to being able to look at the text and critically see how Joseph Smith did it. And so when you hear there's no way Joseph could have written the book of Mormon, these are more areas where you could say, this is how he did it. This is how he did it. And then obviously in our upcoming overviews, we're going to have a lot more of looking at how he could have done it and where he was pulling from. But it just shows in this particular instance, he's doing this under a lot of stress, a lot of threat from Lucy. And I just think it's really important to keep noting that um, because of when people say he couldn't have done it, it's like, no, he could have, because we have all of these fingerprints showing not just that he could, but that he did. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. And, and yeah, I mean, just, you know, as a really quick overview here to end it, this was, we talked about earlier, this is a golden opportunity. If, if Joseph Smith is truly a prophet of God, God here is hanging Joseph out to dry because God could let Joseph retranslate on a tight translation. He could strike Lucy Harris dumb. He could, he could, I mean, imagine what kind of uh, prophetic skills it would have showed of Joseph if God had told Joseph through the peep slash shearstone where the manuscript was, and Joseph shows up at Lucy's door and says, hey, I want you to take me to the hole you dug behind the house a few weeks ago. You know what I mean? Like all of those things would 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 show you this dude talks to God because he knows things that he shouldn't be able to know. Well, what if Lucy? What if Lucy had been converted because an angel with a flaming sword came that, to her yeah. and said, "Stop it, Lucy!" And then Lucy became a convert. Like why yeah. is only why is Joseph only seeing the angel with the flaming sword? Yep. But then no one else who's a non-believer gets yeah. to have that witness. And that's just it. And so this is an area where Lucy Lucy Harris is, I think, obviously suspicious. And I think she realizes what Joseph's doing. It's kind of like, you know, if you go and you're at a faith healing convention in modern times and you can kind of see the things they're doing. Or if you go when you see those psychic readings and you can see how the psychic is constantly prodding you to give you give them clues so that they can 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 lead you along. If you're looking for it and you see it and you call those back out to the person, they're going to they're gonna stop doing it because they, they realize what you're doing. And so Joseph appears to see that Lucy knows what he's doing. And that's why Joseph says, you know, he doesn't want her help. And in this case, Lucy then puts him to the test and he fails it. And God says he won't allow his, his prophets to be taken down. But in a lot of ways, we could see here that God really did hang Joseph out to dry because even though we're giving him 
the replacement text, he's just basically skipping all of these really easy chances to prove uh, that he's a prophet. And if your goal is to convert as many people to the Mormon church as possible, why in the world is God not taking that opportunity? Why is he sitting out the chance to prove that his, his, his prophet is a real prophet? Why is he doing almost the opposite and basically making him look like he's making it up? Well, what's tough about that argument is this is the most successful religion ever formed in the United States. And so yeah, it is, know, but... even, even with these problems, God and Joseph were pretty effective, unless yeah. you consider that in 2022, now that all this is really known and obvious, and now that we have the internet and people like us and Metcalfs and Tanners and Vogels and others to kind of lay it all out, uh, you know, uh, the church is starting to shriek. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's just it. It's like one of those things like we've talked about before, but it, it's a successful religion and it is. But at the same time, I mean, you're talking like, what is that? Like 1% of the world, not even 1% of the world's population. and Less than one, less like than two, two tenths or something. Two tenths of one Two tenths. And yeah. so, and yeah, it's successful. Yeah. But at the same time, like this is one of those areas or translating the book of Abraham correctly. Those are areas where there are testable ways to, to, to test Joseph's claims. And every time we have like a tangible way to test it, he fails. And every well, time he, it, you know. it's growing with, with the church having to hide the very information that we're talking about today, right? The church has to hide this information from investigators and from its mainstream members to be able to sustain and grow. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing is the church has hid all this from the membership since yeah. the beginning. You know? And again, you know, I, I guess there's a way to, to, to finish that up. And, and I guess to, to end this is just, again, I'm still a member, but I'm not a believing member. And so if you had told me this story as an investigator, it would have, the alarm bells have been going off my head. And yeah. so that is the thing, like you, the, the fact that they still hold it is, is really difficult. And, and, and to your point, most people don't know this. And that's why I think this one's important because it gets in the weeds. But when you get this, it also, it helps you to understand our previous few episodes about treasure digging and, and the gold plates, but it's also going to help us to understand the next few episodes about um, looking at the Book of Mormon, the composition of it, and why we can show it's a 19th century text, because these things all yeah. go perfectly together. And I think that'll be um, very helpful. So we can go, this slide is just, you know, um, we talked about it already a bit, but DNC 10 almost makes it sound like Satan is more powerful than God, because Satan is able to basically alter this text harden people's hearts um, to expose Joseph Smith, all of these different things, but that God is unable to tell Joseph where the, where the manuscript is. God is unable to translate it the same way a second time so that he could stop Satan's plan. God is unable to, like you said, send an angel down to Lucy Harris to say, hey, I'm an angel of God. We need the manuscript back. All of these things God can do or to confound their thoughts, confound their text. God can't do any of that. And yet Satan apparently is so good at this that he can make Lucy Harris come up with this scheme that she never even goes through with to alter this text. It just, you know, it's, it's, it's a really insecure God that comes through some of the re revelations of Joseph Smith. And it just makes you seem like who's the one in charge here. Is it God that's, that's running the show or is it Satan? And I, I know that would sound very offensive to a believing member, but again, I'm just saying, why is it that God can't do anything to overcome the plan of Satan without going all the way around what Satan wants to do. It just seems like he's going through a lot of work um, because he can't overdo what he claims Satan is going to do. Yeah. All right. Last slide. Yeah. Last slide. And this is going to kind of go into our, our next overview, but it's just to say um, that the replacement text leaves his fingerprints all over the scene of the book. And it really shows why the people in the middle of the book know the end or don't know the end. Whereas the people in the beginning do 
And this is going to continue on as we go through the, the, the next few overviews that really hammer the text of the Book of Mormon as opposed to the production of it. And just saying again, I've said this before, but just these issues need to be taken together because of the fact that this is going to, this ties directly in still into the translation, which goes into the treasure digging. Um, and then now we're going to actually kind of transition away from that early part of the dictation and go into um, the actual text of the Book of Mormon and some of the truth claims it makes. And I think that this is going to be really helpful when we talk about um, the DNA in the Book of Mormon, which is going to be our next overview. All right. So that's what I was going to ask. So our yeah. next one's going to be DNA in the Book of Mormon. So we're yep. going to step out of criti critical, you know, analysis, uh, textual analysis, and we're going to talk about DNA. Yes. And then we'll come back to. Uh, yeah, we've we've uh, got, uh, there's, there's tight versus loose translation, the surrounding influences. And then once we get through the next few overviews, there's going to be one final overview on the Book of Mormon, which is basically how could he have done it? And I think that one's going to be really cool because there's a couple of examples in there that show you how he was pulling sources into it. And I, again, I think just like the 116 pages are a little bit in the weeds, but once you get it, then you start to see it. And once you start to see it, everything else becomes yeah. not just explainable, but like explainable to the point where you could say only Joseph could have done this. And I think that's why when we talk about, um, you know, apologetics and all that, you have to take all of this together because when you answer those things, you still have to answer the rest. And, and that's what I'm trying to do on this is to, to almost like, you know, put the, put the buffers on both sides to say, if you want to go here, you got to still explain here. And, um, you know, I don't want to ramble on about this, but I do hope that as we go further, it will explain not just how he did it, but like where he was pulling from and, um, the thoughts of his day that we don't talk about today that, that just happened to end up in, in a text that's supposed to be ancient. All right. Well, Mike, this was a fascinating and a really important episode. So I'm just loving the series. Thank you. Thank you so much. And everyone who, uh, you know, everyone who wants to kind of read all this in detail, who wants to check out the footnotes, who wants to see more, more explanations, you can go to ldsdiscussions.com slash 116 pages. We'll include that in the show notes. And again, um, we, we really would love your feedback on this series. Do you like having just me and Mike? Do you want to have... Uh, additional co-hosts? Do you want us to try and keep it tighter? Believe it or not, we're at we're at two and two, almost at two and a half hours, and this was the shorter version. But this could have been much longer if we had had more co-hosts. So, do you want it with additional co-hosts? Do you like to keep it tighter? Do you want to keep it even tighter than it is? Do you want multiple versions? We would love your feedback either in the comments or email us at mormonstories at gmail.com, or you can email Mike at LDS discussions, right? At gmail.com. Is that your email? It's, it's LDS discussion singular. So there's no S. So LDS discussion at gmail.com. I should probably get a better email address. <laughs> oh, even though the website is LDS discussions. Plural. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't get okay. the Gmail. That's so yeah. <laughs> anyway, send us your feedback. Let us know what you like. We're, we, we hope to have 40 or 50 or 60 of these episodes before all is said and done. We want it to be this series that you can binge watch, kind of like a year of polygamy. You could do a year of LDS discussions, <laughs> a year of Mormon truth claims, and by the end, really have a solid understanding of the problems of the Mormon church's uh, truth claims. Anyway, thanks so much, Mike. You're awesome. We'll see Thank you again you. soon. Yep. See you, viewers and listeners. And, and I'll just end by saying, if you value this content, if you want to see it continue, we would love your financial support. Go to Mormon Stories. Dot org. Click on the donate button, become a monthly donor, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, whatever you can afford. We're transparent in our finances. We always have been. 
uh, every dollar that we spend is on advancing the mission of the Open Stories Foundation. And uh, and we'll keep doing this until we no longer have support for it. But, um, you know, please support us if you value this. So everyone, thank you so much. Take care. And we'll see you guys all again soon, guys and gals, on another episode of Mormon Stories Podcast. Take care, everybody.